What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell with ArtOfMagic.com. Thank you so much for listening to Magical Thinking, this little podcast that I've been doing. You guys have been very kind, and you've emailed in at podcast at ArtOfMagic.com, and you've let me know what you thought. And I'm really pleased to say that so far, most things have been overwhelmingly positive, and that makes me really happy. I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. Uh, if you want to email in, please do. Let me know what you think. My guest today is Gazzo. He is a huge, legendary figure in the magic community, one of the most well-known buskers, street performers across the world. Uh, if you've seen anybody do the cups and balls, they probably have seen Gazzo do his, either on YouTube or actually lucky enough to see him do it on the street. Uh, we talk about some awesome stuff, including the shenanigans he's been up to in the United States, busking, of course. We talk about Walter Irving Scott and the second deal, and Gazzo... Uh, is very opinionated, and he says some things that you and I may or may not agree with, and that's fine. I want to give a safe space to the guests that come onto the show so that they can be more open and honest and transparent so that you as the listeners and myself can get to know them a little better as a person. Anyway, I just wanted to say that there might be some things that you and I may or not agree with, but uh, he holds his convictions very strongly, which is fine. I think it's great. Like I said, this was an absolute dream come true. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Of course, follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram with at a sense of mystery as well as at treasury of wonder. And you can find us on all the other socials with at a sense of mystery. Anyway, like I said, I hope you enjoy the show. Email me. Oh, I almost forgot. I also want to mention that we recorded about half the episode of the Magic Castle and then we went to our usual recording spot uh, afterwards. So there's a little bit of um, a weird break in the center, but it's okay. No big deal. We pick up right where we left off, and it shouldn't be a problem for you. Anyway, enjoy. Bye. Jesus Christ. What a country. <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, I thought you'd enjoy that. <laughs> uh, anyway. I'm ready. I'm ready to get I'm started. Re- We're already are. recording, so. Yeah. Oh, we are. Yeah. All right. Which is awesome. She'll never hear this. I'm setting up as I go, so just uh, if I might ask you to repeat the question. So. That's fine. Yeah, no problem. Um, it's not as much an, an interview as it is just a discussion conversation. Gotcha. I just get to listen to you talk. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fortunate enough to be able to sit here and listen to you anyway. All right. Um, so yeah, would you I would you please just kick it off with getting started growing up in England and then just immediately becoming fascinated with uh, cards and scans and yeah, things like yeah. that. Growing up in England, well, I never really grew up in England. I've never really grown up. I'm still very childish. Excellent. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> but that fits, I suppose, because. Um, you know, I'm a very playful person, you know, in, yeah, even yeah. in my normal life. You know, I like to have, I think laughter is the best medicine. I love to have a laugh, you know. I love it when people make me laugh. It's very rare um, today, but I do like a good laugh, I must admit. So I don't really want to grow up, you know. Okay, perfect. I like, I like <laughs> keeping awesome. my childlike ways, you know. Yeah, yeah. So being being a small boy then, maybe not growing up in, in England, but being a small boy in England. A small boy in England. Uh, boy. Yeah, or I, girl. Which <laughs> uh, I was a boy. Believe me, I was a boy. I know for a fact I was a boy. Um, growing up, I, I grew up in a place called Didcot, Oxfordshire. Okay. Uh, I grew up primarily uh, in a blue-collar family, you know. 
Uh, my dad was working all the time, my mum was working, and uh, I had four brothers, and a, four, sorry, four sisters and a brother, so there was six of us, eight with my mo- mother and father. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I got interested in magic at a very uh, early age. I don't know why some people would, you know, some people grew up interested in juggling. They take to the juggling. I, un- I, no, I never understood how people are fascinated with, ju- you know, juggling as a career. I took magic as a career. I was interested in watching people make things disappear, where the counterparts of my friends uh, that I met later on in years in life was, they grew up interested in keeping balls in their hair. Uh, it's a big difference. I don't, don't get it. Why? You know, my sister used to uh, have these two balls and hit them against the wall and do this, play this game. And uh, I took over and started to doing it. But when I dropped the ball and it's like, oh, tedious, I can't be bothered to pick it up and try it again. <laughs> Who would ever want to keep doing this all day? You know, it was a knack that you had to adhere to. And uh, it was just nothing fascinating for me. But to make something vanish, you know, and watching somebody do something on TV, producing something or making something vanish, I had an instant fascination for it. Don't know why. And I, I think that's a question for a lot of magicians. Why did mm-hmm. you take to magic? You know? It's just a fascinating question. Uh, I don't know. Um, but I have a theory that most magicians in life are short. Okay. And there are some Harry Anderson and sure. Dave Williamson and uh, <coughs> Steve Valentine. They're all tall. But there are magicians that mostly are short. And I think it's from insecurity. Yeah. What I, I, I was talking to somebody last night. I was like, what trauma in your childhood made you want to be a magician? It's that kind of like you're you're making up for some kind of shortcoming that you have yourself. I guess I don't know, but um, you know, if you look at all the greats, the real serious greats of magic, they're all sort of like five six, five seven, five eight, you know. Yeah. But you do get the six foot two performers. Sure. But uh, yeah, most magicians, are f- I think they're short and they're insecure and they use magic to uh, for. A icebreaker at parties I don't know it wasn't me I just had a fascination for it sure magic chose me I didn't choose it you know yeah absolutely yeah and I and I don't know why I can't answer it I haven't analyzed it as much as I should but I love it it's a wonderful art to be in and Mm -hmm. uh, it's a big family sure Um, but that's one side the other side is a street performers family as well yeah you know Um, I suppose one rubs the other I mean I took to magic was fascinated with it and I wanted to become good at it and uh, so I took to street performing again it chose me I didn't choose it I was told to street perform um, to become good at what I do who told you to street perform Ken Brook (coughs) Ken Brook and and a gentleman called Murray Murray Walters he was an escape artist in he had an Australian guy who traveled all over the world Um, Val Andrews wrote a book about him and uh, he had a, a magic shop in Blackpool Mm-hmm. that I would up on the train and, and jump the train and without paying and go up to Blackpool, which was like a six-hour train ride from where I lived. Okay. You had to change change trains, but back then you could sort of hop on trains and and uh, sit between the, hide in between the seats, the luggage seats, and mm-hmm. without having a, a ticket, you know. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you get caught, you get turfed off, but most of the time I got a free ride there and back, and uh, and I would go visit Murray, and he was an old man, a very old man, and he told me that there's a gentleman called Ken Brook who had uh, a, a magic shop on Wardle Street to go visit him and tell him I sent you. And then Ken, and then I remember Ken uh, performing at a convention once, and I said, "You're the guy that had a holdout 
would he used to make sponge balls disappear with a with a bike cable. Uh-huh. You know, he'd come up with this. He tried to sell it, but it didn't sell very well. I'd like to have one now, actually, because it'd be a nice collector's item. And Kembrook handwritten uh, the notes to this bike cable. Uh, I can't remember if the bike cable was under the desk or or in his other hand. I I, I don't remember, but it was a, a, a bike cable that come out and with a sticky, and it would make the sponge ball coin disappear. And I remember telling him about that. And I said, you also performed the, a trick with the egg bag, you know, a black bag, mm-hmm. egg bag. And uh, he said, yeah. And I said, I'd like to get one of them. He said, I don't have any more. But he said, take this one. And he gave me one out of his top pocket. Wow. And then a week later, apparently, the shop closed down after that. You know, it wasn't around no more. But then that's when I found out about Davenport's opposite mm-hmm. the British Museum. And also uh, another one was uh, Southampton Row was... The guy that just died, uh, Alan Allen, who had a magic shop, which was a nice magic shop. And he had lots of jokes and etc. and gags in the window. Mm-hmm. And that was to encourage people to come in and ask questions. But he was kind of rude to people, which was kind of funny in its way. Of course. Um, so, uh, and that's how I got associated with the, the, the London scene. And, and uh, then I realized London was a good place to, to move to. So I decided to move there when I was quite young mm-hmm. and uh, to pursue street performing I found out about Covent Garden and Camden Town mm-hmm. and, uh, and that is my sort of raw road to the magic world I suppose and if the entertaining you, world you were told that if you wanted chops to get out on the street yeah well it. that's obvious I think in many cases isn't it yeah but I did start off Murray actually told me to uh, perform in pubs you oh, know, okay, put a yeah. poster up, ask the proprietor if I could come in, say, on a Wednesday night when it's slow. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't want you on a Saturday night when it's busy. Sure. Ironically, it's a bit silly, isn't it? It's back to front. You want to do it when there's a crowd. But they don't need you to do anything when they're selling beer. Yeah. They want you there when they're not selling beer. Of course. So, which worked in my favor because when it was slow, you know, um, I just put a poster up saying the magic show will be here at 8 o'clock on a Wednesday or a Thursday. And... So I'm surprised it, it, they showed up. I think I was like 16 or 17 back then. But, you know, back then you could actually drink beer in a pub at that age. Yeah. Literally, you couldn't do it today. Yeah. Um, so you were allowed to go in there without an adult. And uh, I went in to perform magic tricks. And I found out very quickly the tricks to perform and not to perform the tricks that were engaging mm-hmm. but that wasn't enough because the same people would show up the next Thursday if I put if it was successful I'd put a poster up and we'd do it a we- on a weekly event yeah. but I found it was kind of the same people so I had to have a wide range of, of tricks of, of repertoire sure. and uh, but that didn't work for me because I didn't want to keep researching tricks to yeah, do yeah, yeah. you know so I and then I remembered Ken Kenbrook and Murray telling me about busking street performing you know, um, they actually told me that you can perform on a, ba- a barrel, a mini barrel. You get a barrel outside a pub, because I used to leave barrels when I was a kid outside a pub before they would deliver them down the chute. Okay. And you could stand out there, put a tabletop on the barrel, uh, and because people couldn't put their beers on it because it was arched. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, you could put a tabletop on that barrel and perform for lunchtime crowds, and I started doing that. And then, uh, then I found out very quickly that what works, and I was amongst adults, and uh, I was amongst adults, and also uh, my humour was 
was it, it developed very quickly my gags and bits yeah I was about to ask is that when the the bits started coming oh they come overnight yeah immediately yeah. you know but I, I grew up with my, my dad and my sisters always joking around and playing sure. jokes and I have a file of jokes in my head at any given moment I can set up I can come up with a joke at any given setup moment. I don't set up a joke sure. like some of my guys that steal my my jokes. They mm -hmm. will set up a joke, you know, like uh, they will ask somebody to let their cell phone ring so they could do a joke about that. You know, it's like setting up a joke. I've never done that in my life. <laughs> yeah. You do the you you you, perf you you deliver the joke when the time arises. You know, let it be organic. Yeah, but you have to have a file of jokes in your head. You know, you can't sit there and think about it. It's too late. The pacing has to be instant. You know, mm -hmm. and and that's kind of what my uh, forte is. I'm, you know, I'm sort of known for that. But that's because I'm experienced. You know, anybody can obtain it, but you have to remember what you've been doing and the joke you did to develop the laugh. Yeah, and then you file it in your head, um, and I can pull those files out at any moment. You know. Do you have jokes that you use all the time? Uh, yeah, most most jokes that de develop classic bits. Mm. At the beginning, I do a segment just purely to set up the crowd so they know what direction the show's going. Although I can be very engaging with my style, I encourage that. But I don't c encourage heckling or sure. wise-ass remarks. I don't like to encourage that. But I do encourage that because of my style. Um, mm -hmm. I like to avoid it. But I like to uh, initiate uh, right from the beginning uh, the way it's going to go, you know, with the way I perform, and the audience know that. But you get some people that are there with their girlfriend, or and they're trying to show off to try and better me, and they ain't got a chance. Not, not even, a chance. not even a little. Not a chance. <laughs> you know, not being conceited, but they don't. You know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but you know, when they have a few drinks, they get courage in them. Of course. Liquid courage. Kind of courage, and, <laughs> you know. But that's all fine. It's all fun and games, isn't it? And sure. I don't mean, uh, I don't mean to uh, offend any of my audience members. It's yeah, just that's the show I have, you know. Mm -hmm. But I've toned down in the last like four or five years dramatically, you know. Um, purely because I want to work. <laughs> <laughs> you know? What do you? What, so okay, let's. I want to. I want to talk about this here in the states. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've been having this politically correct conversation. Oh, uh, I got a lot to say about that. It's it's wishy washy. It's pathetic, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's <coughs> America's religious based. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really it really is. Yeah, yeah. But in England, we don't we don't really gear towards religion. We keep it to ourselves. You know. Sure. Where in America, they try to inflict it on other people, mm -hmm. which is like. You know, religion to me, religion is is some is Christianity tied to control the devilry in us, right? But humans are evil people. Sure. But your job is to control that mm -hmm. evilness in you by trying to do good and bad, and that's why people take to Christianity. Okay, and uh, so Christianity was designed to control the devilry in us. But first of all, you have to accept that you're an evil person. Once you accept that, mm -hmm. then you can control it or try to control <coughs> it. But if you go through life saying, I'm not evil, yeah. you know, and I'm a do-gooder and I do good everywhere, that's... That's the definition is, of hip Yeah, it's the complete opposite. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, an animal is not capable of the devilry in a human, mm -hmm. right? But a hum an animal won't kill for the sake of it. A fox might or something like that. But animals usually kill for, for, to, to survive, to yeah, eat. Yeah, out of necessity. Where humans will 
shoot a deer for no apparent reason. They say it's uh, for food and for the trophy, mm -hmm. but it's purely for the, the, the adrenaline rush of shooting something. It's sad. Yeah. I could never do that. You know, yeah, I can't yeah. even chop down a bloody tree or kick down a flower because it's yeah. wrong. It's not, it's not right. So that's, so that's, I know straight away I'm capable of doing it, sure. but I have to control that. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? I, yeah. I, I know that I'm capable of doing evil things, but I don't like to do evil things. Because it's, it's an unpleasant thing. You're hurting something else, For me not it just is. yourself. For me yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, that's the feeling I get. Well, yeah. But some people, the guy that shot that lion, you know, that dentist, oh. what, a, what a complete fucking wanker that guy was, you know? <laughs> absolutely. Don't edit that out. No, I'm not going to. Fuck no, that guy. what a fucking wanker that yeah, guy is. Absolutely. I hope I hope that he gets a fucking cyst in the bottom of his spine. You know, you know what I'm saying. It's oh yeah, like just the worst to kind of do thing. something like that. It's like yeah. people that kill gorillas, you know, in in Africa and stuff like. That. It's just uh, it's a weird world we're living in. Yeah. And let's get back to magic. <laughs> let's start cussing up some big magicians. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, so I don't know. That all just came about because I was interested in your. Well, I'm very opinionated, and I rattle on, don't I? Well, yeah, but that's I. That's fine. I'm happy to have it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just the uh, the and that Bill Malone, what a bastard he is! <laughs> <laughs> he works, doesn't he? That boy. Oh boy, yeah, he works more than Man, anybody. Anybody. And uh, he's somebody you want dead, right? Because that way we can get work. <laughs> you know? Leave some for the rest of us, Bill. He's the best there is, isn't he? Oh yeah, he he's really is. he's all star. And he's the nicest guy in the world. Very nice. Uh, I had the pleasure of uh, being introduced to him by Steve Reynolds. Oh right. In New Orleans, yeah. He's he's a guy that frequents a lot of the conventions, um, but wouldn't you really like to see him in his own environment? Oh, I you love know, it. He plays around at conventions, but uh, you know, live in late audience, he's unbelievable. He's a different kettle of fish. He's on a different uh, level from everybody. Mm -hmm. There's a few of them out there that I really admire. Juan Tamarez is another one. You know, uh, purely for his old magical career, worked for lay people. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's just great. There's a lot of great stuff in magic, you know, I'm really proud to be associated with this industry, I really am. Well, I, I think many of us would consider you one of the greats up there with Tamaris and Malone, as far as... Not really, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that, you know, I've... Maybe I, not, maybe, maybe not technically for Malone or, or, you know, creatively for Tamaris, but you definitely, you've done more shows than anybody in the world. I have. You know your shit. I, oh, I do. You, you, you have the best experience, some of the most amazing things to say, and yeah, I, I certainly put you up there with those guys. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that there's, you know, there's uh, other names that I'd like, to, I would love to mention, but uh, please do, yeah. This, yeah, like D Williamson, he's another one. It's, mm -hmm. he's got chops. Scott you know, very funny. I have a, I have a, when I, I just did a big lecture tour and I was talking about certain greats, you know, like Al, Albert Goshman. Mm -hmm. You know, Albert Goshman throughout his career performed the same routine. Basically, yeah. it varied a lot. But I'm sure if you saw Albert Goshman work at one convention, then three months later you see him at another convention, and three years later you see him at another convention, and two decades later at another convention, each show would kind of be similar. Mm -hmm. The pacing might be different. But what, what I try to explain to people is Albert Goshman performed those same routines for his entire career. And that is why he become a tight performer. And that is why people flock to see him because they know it was going to be consistently good. And uh, where today, you know, um, 
you get people that are performing the the, the the latest trick they buy from the internet. Maybe it'd be cartoon because the guy won on England's Got Talent yeah. with cartoon, and then all of a sudden everyone's <coughs> trying to buy that routine and think they can come up with the same response. But it it doesn't work like that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so flavor of the week tricks are not what I'm all about. Sure. I, I try to encourage people to perform the same three tricks for 30 years instead of 30 tricks every three months. Because mm -hmm. that's the difference, you know. You keep buying a drawer full of stuff, you know, and the, uh, and the classics are out there like the, uh, the, the egg bag. I, I'm a, on a campaign not to call it the egg bag because why would you come out and say to the audience, would you like to see my color changing deck routine? You know, yeah. so you don't call it the egg bag, do you? You call yeah. it the black bag or the fabric bag or sure. the little black bag. Mm -hmm. So that's what I call it. You know, that's a classic in itself. But who talked about these tricks was uh, Roy Benson, mm -hmm. um, uh, Tom Malika, Johnny Thompson, uh, Charlie Miller. They all talked about this fantastic routine. You know, Ken Brook talked about it. Uh, Bruce Elliott, Dr. Elliott. Mm -hmm. You know, they all talked about this fantastic. Uh, apparatus you know and uh, I read all all the anecdotes and uh, notes of, of all the greats talking about this but let's talk about the people that said it wasn't a great trick it was Vernon Miller sorry Vernon uh, Larry Jennings mm -hmm. uh, Bruce Savon they all talked about the egg bag it was crap they don't understand it Marlowe was another uh, hater of it he just didn't get it yeah. but the, uh, let's think about who the greats were that these are guys about it. performing for lay people these are these are guys that you go to see at a convention mm -hmm. Vernon was the type of guy that was uh, jealous in many ways about he would ask yeah I can come to your convention but who's on the bill they say Slidini Vernon would turn around and say uh, not not this time because he didn't want to be in the same convention as Slidini because people would flock to see Slidini. Mm -hmm. Although Vernon had a room full of people, but it was uh, card men, heavy, heavy hitter card men. Um, but Slidini's magic worked for lay people and magicians. Albert Goshman worked for lay people and magicians. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? That's the difference, but they would understand the egg bag because they're performers where Vernon would never understand the egg bag and he didn't understand it because he was never really a performer of, of lay people but he performed his magic at conventions um, but when you if you ever choose to perform Vernon's routines at, in front of lay people it does not carry the same weight as you do in sponge balls or sponge bunnies believe it or not or uh, Miser's Dream or Chinese Sticks or salt pour, mm -hmm. or uh, or the uh, egg bag, yeah. black bag, or you know, the, for that for that reason, because the the audience understand those those less is more yeah. tricks, mm -hmm. you know, where you're doing like counting tricks and uh, reds and blacks and oil and waters and and uh, ace assemblies. It's, it's it's pathetic. I learned very quickly at my young age, going mm -hmm. back to when I performed in the pubs that those tricks don't work, they're not engaging. They watch you and they tap you on the shoulder as a great trick, mate. What they want to say, what the fuck was that? <laughs> you bring your Okita box out, the crowd's gonna turn on you. You know, but you bring the black bag out, it's like, wow, what's going on here? You see what I mean? That's yeah. the difference. But people purchase the egg bag, the black bag, uh, early in their career, because they read about it, and they say, it's, I've got to get this trick, and it's 20 bucks, they get it, and they go, what the hell is this? Yeah. And they come and perform it with that wooden egg they give you, and you're like, oh, this is not working, it's terrible. 
you know so why would they, all these greats say it was great you know yeah. why yeah, would yeah. they so you go back do you get your okido box out and you bring that to the restaurant you perform into your mates and it's like you got the Chinese coin you put in the purse and then the silver coin changes with the English penny and English pennies now change with the Chinese coin and in my pocket is the silver dollar I bring the silver dollar out it's double-edded you go <laughs> what the hell's going on here it's like a puzzle yeah it's not magic but they think there's more to the Okido box than there is the black bag. Mm -hmm. Because there has to be, because it turns and it looks the same as his lids on. And there's a Boston box and it goes like on and on. It's like crap, it's the worst trick in the world. <laughs> and it costs you a hundred bucks for that. The, the black bag is 20 bucks, Yeah, you know? That's the difference. But you don't find these things out unless you perform in front of lay people mm -hmm. over and over again. Yeah, You know, that's what I've been finding out very quickly. Do you think that there, that it's possible to take let's say the Akita box, the worst trick in the world, and elevate it into something that is entertaining? I'm sure some performers could do that, like maybe David Williamson could do something like that, mm -hmm. but he would have to bring about a funny situation with it. Sure. You know, um, but me personally, I couldn't be asked with it. It's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. You know, not me. That's the not trick mine. isn't inherently good. It has to yeah, be Yeah, it has good. to be. Like Ramsey's Cylinder and Coins, it's not a trick that to me is, is an engaging trick for the audience. It's for a convention trick it, mm -hmm. when you go to a convention that's the type of tricks you want to see because they say it's the most difficult trick to perform cylinder and coins everyone said in the 30s and 40s the cups and balls is the most difficult trick to perform but I've changed that I've allowed every even a novice to come out and perform the cups and balls and make it engaging because I released it uh, you know you see what I mean I, yeah, I I've changed the principle of that mm -hmm. of the the stigma wrapped around the cups and balls I've changed that um, and uh, because I, I know that although it's, it is still the greatest trick in the world, um, but, but um, it, it has to, every trick has to be engaging, it has to be understood from the audience. It can't have those uh, hurdles of too many uh, s segments in, in the routine, it has to basically cut to the chase. But I do, uh, but even though I do uh, a couple routine, you know, it's really five or six minutes of of uh, the, the, the early segments beginning, middle and end, but with the jokes and the bits and pieces, it ends up to be sometimes 40 minutes to an hour. Yeah. But that's what tricks are all about, is to make it engaging and funny and and uh, entertaining for the audience to watch, yeah. you know? And uh, I'm one of those guys that can perform for lay people and magicians, you see, at a convention, you know. I'm really sought after of a lot of conventions. I choose not to do a lot of conventions because the purpose they don't pay enough. And uh, secondly is I don't enjoy performing for magicians, but I can. Sure. I can get them laughing, and, and, uh, but my, my forte is lay people. I have a lot of respect for lay people. I couldn't give a toss about magicians, you know. Of course. <laughs> You're, uh, I saw your show a couple nights ago, and it, um, it was pretty. It was, uh, it was honestly, it was surreal for me because, you know, even though you're not doing your street show, you're doing a new set. You know, there are lines I'd heard from watching you sure. perform on the street on YouTube and things like that. Yeah, and uh, and it was just, it was, we, <laughs> it was, it was an honor. Is what I'm trying to say to yeah. see it in person and to hear it and. Yeah. That goes back to you saying you have that bank of jokes that you can pull from. That file of jokes, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I pull them out at any moment, yeah. And I tend to do that, you know. And that's what makes my show the way it is, you know. Yeah. And that's what 
I mean, like you say, I've, I've I've worked hard to get where I am. It hasn't come overnight, you know. Of course. So I do. I do, I, I insist on respect, really. Absolutely. You, know? you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Because I've gone through the trenches. You know, I've got my badge of merit or my badge of courage or whatever you call it. You know, I've earned my bravery award. You know. Yeah, yeah. By storming the trenches and getting in there. Absolutely. Getting my fingers dirty. Yeah, yeah. But you see, when I when I first started my show. There was before internet, before cell phones, before sound systems. Um, my reputation evolved through purely attrition of my show. People spoke about my show. You got to see this guy. You got to see this guy. So word got about where you don't need to have a show today. You just need the internet, and you just need to plug yourself on the internet about sure. how good you are. Mm. And you know, and that's what people are doing. But they don't really understand that at the end of the day, no matter how bullshitty they get on the internet, you've got to have a show. You've got because to, one day yeah. you're going to be in front of the people that you've been talking to about yourself about. You say, okay, you know, I do this and I do, I'm great, and yeah, you get other people to tell you how good they are, and all of a sudden you go, right, you're up. You say, boy, that guy, he fell on his face, so it will bite you in the ass at the end. Yeah. You see, where I never talked about myself on the internet, other sure. people did. Yeah. When the internet was available, but before the internet, it was my show uh, spoke for itself. You it built was, your foundation. Yes, and before the internet. Yeah, and that's you know I, I coming from a time of the internet and being a magician who learned primarily from the internet. Yeah, um, got all his books through the internet, bought yeah. them online, that sort of thing, and um, you know I I was I, I I was lucky that when I started. I just had the, the the predisposition to kind of do what you're saying to do, which is get your shit together, know your stuff, be be good before you say you are. It's better to keep your mouth shut and people think you're a fool than to open your mouth and keep your ears and your eyes open, your mouth shut. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Choose your battles. Yeah, and you 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 know performed thousands hundreds of thousands of shows probably hundreds of thousands yeah that's probably, incredible yeah. yeah i think i've done more shows than anybody in the world i mean i don't know if that's correct but sure. i think i have yeah, yeah yeah you know especially uh lately my new show is 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 developed into a quick choppy show and uh i bought a sack full of oranges i produce i perform car to orange as you know yes so i count the oranges at the end of the day and uh, by the by, twenty I had twenty orange, twenty two oranges in a bag. Wow! I bought twenty two. Two were gangrous, gangrous. Uh -huh. It was like too soft to perform with. Sure. So I ended up doing twenty shows. When I went to do reach into the bag to get the last, the second from last orange, it was gangrous. It was too uh, pussy, and I couldn't perform with it. Sure. So I had to pack up. But I was ready to do two or three more shows. But I ran out of oranges, <laughs> so I did twenty shows in that day. Wow! So I'm capable of doing twenty shows easily a day. Mm -hmm. You know, and some days I do do that. Yeah. You know. That's so. amazing, and and you're just this. Where do you where are you performing normally? Are you still street performing? I I do busk. I have a lot of passion for it. I have to, I love to perform. I have to perform for money because I need to pay my bills. Of course. But if I was wealthy and uh, independently rich, I would do it for free. Mm -hmm. But I can't afford to do that. Sure. So I demand payment. You know, I insist upon it. Of course. Purely so I can carry on doing what I love to do, and that's performing. And. Uh, there's not a lot. I don't get a lot of gigs, uh, you know, 
I, I, I turn down gigs because purely I don't want to do gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was, if it was, uh, on the other hand, I was performing more gigs than than I was able to street perform, then I would go into that market. But there's, I, I, per, per, I really don't get a lot of gigs because, you know, people work, obviously work cheaper or they consider that they're better or what, I don't know the answer. Mm. I don't get a lot of gigs, maybe because of my style of working. They're worried that I might offend somebody or something like that. I don't know. Sure. Um, so I know that my market is still street performing because I love to work. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, that's where I still work. Yeah, I still busk on the streets. Busking is the is the adopted term, correct pronunciation as a street performer. Sure. It's the adopted term. Busking has gone worldwide now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I still busk, but I'm mostly getting booked in is. Payment-wise, is mostly outdoor festivals in Europe and in England. Um, How many of those do you do a year, just out of curiosity? Uh, ten or fifteen. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. cool. Big festivals, you know. Um, I go to Canada every year, um, and when I'm not working, then I'm 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 street performing, you mm-hmm. know. But I do I do get gigs, you know. I get a, a I get a, a private party, do a, an engagement, a, a club or a gig or a corporate sure. event. I do get them, mm-hmm. but I don't I don't look for them. They okay. call me and I put a price in. And they agree. Then I go to do that gig. Sure. But I, I don't care if I work work for those people or not. Anyway, yeah. you know, I like street performing. I still have passion for it. You know, I've been performing my whole life. So, you know, really three decades now. So, I'm ready to do another two at least. <laughs> what um, what is what's your? You learned at a young age what tricks worked. Yes, I did. What does that mean? What's the goal that you have for your spectators, for your audience? What do you want them to feel or to experience? Well, um, you know, that that's a difficult uh, question to answer because I don't know what they're feeling. But I know um, that what they're witnessing is, is something unique and... Uh, and it's completely baffling what I do. You know, it's completely baffling watching it for the first time. A lot of performers have said, you know, if they come back three or four times, they could kind of figure it out, but they won't be able to figure it exactly out because yeah. there's a lot of pocket management going on and time into the bits. But the first layperson coming into seeing it is completely baffling. Um, I think I, I'd like to give the same effect I, ha- I had on watching Albert Goshman or Slidini work, you know? Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Or Ken Brook. Sure. I was completely baffled and entertained. Yeah. And I hope that they're getting the same feeling about me when I perform. And, uh, you know, and and I'll be entirely satisfied if they are yeah. getting that feeling, you know? Yeah. But who knows? I don't. Is the... So, so being baffled and being entertained... Is that a 50-50 split? Not that being baffled isn't also being entertained at the same time, but I mean, just joke-wise and then magic-wise, which of those? Well, I, I p- p- personally, I like watching pure magic. Mm-hmm. I like watching uh, George Soterio, who's, who's a, a silent act on stage. I like watching his style. It's fantastic. I like watching um, uh, Lance Burton perform. I like watching these guys. They're silent. And I love watching Cardini. They didn't say anything, but that's pure magic. But I also like the other one, Sid Lorraine, who was funny mm-hmm. when he performed. He did gags and bits. He was silent, but he was funny. I'd rather have the clown aspects involved in it commercially mm-hmm. because it's 
more engaging. Although magic does sell when you're at a certain level, uh, Cardini, Cardini perf performed, and his magic spoke for him itself. You know, sure. he didn't have to advertise his magic. People talked about him. You got to see Cardini go, and when they would go into the theatre and see him perform, they knew they were watching a master of his art. Mm -hmm. um, I enjoyed that style, but I I purposely enjoyed uh, the clowning side of it. You know, the slapstick. Not so Chaplin's sure, style, sure, sure, but you yeah. know, we're doing magic. Um, who can I say that was that was great? Uh, um, the guy that just died recently, um, uh, Barry Carl Ballantyne. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Although he spoke, but he sure. he had spoofs. He was fantastic, wasn't he? he? Was he was one of my heroes? You know, I never told him that because I didn't really get to know him much. But he was one of sure. my heroes. Uh, Tom Mullica's another one who's. Mm -hmm who's a comedy, you know, and I think that sounds better than somebody that's so, so serious. Sure. You know, um, so I I tend to enjoy more the clowning aspect of, of magic, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I'm a big fan of it. See, the thing is with magic, you don't have to be good at magic. <laughs> what I'm, what I'm right. saying yeah. is, hear me out, what I'm saying is you can go on stage after about three months of practicing in your bedroom, come on stage, and you get, you'll get a slight mediocre applaud. Yeah. You did something, you did a dye tube or whatever, or silk vanish with the fun tip. Yeah. And they applaud, just like applaud you. Yeah. Right? But with juggling, you can't come out after a month and try and entertain the audience because you're going to drop. Yeah. You have to put your homework in. You have to practice. Yeah. Because if you drop, the crowd's going to boo you. You know, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. Yeah, you have to practice juggling. You have yeah. to get up there. So you practice for months and months and months, years, before you can go on stage. Mm. With magic, after a couple of months, you bought a trick, a die box, and you make something disappear with a self-working trick, and they, they applaud you. And that's the, the, the epitome of this art. You know, There's a lot of bad performers. Yeah. You know. And I'll mention some of them's names if you want to edit them out. <laughs> if you want to mention them and no, I won't I, edit them out, you can't. That's not mine. I'm not going to do that. But um, you know what I'm saying? But now, I though? absolutely There's know. There's a lot of saying. bad performers in this industry. Yeah. The, well, it, and it, it's also just kind of the public perception, which we can get to Penn and Teller and the way that they've influenced public perception. Imagine. Oh, they're fantastic, those but, two. Come on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, but it's, it's, you know, I think that, that the public at large believes that all magic is sleight of hand to some degree. So even if you are using a self-working trick, they're going to applaud you because of a perceived skill that you have. I don't know about that. I don't know if that's the case. I just, uh, um, I, I think the public really have literally no idea about magic. They're completely in the dark about it, you know. They have no idea how anything is done. They have a, a theory. Mm -hmm. Sure, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they've, they've no idea. Uh, yeah, that's all I mean is that their theory is that, you know, the guy came out and he did something impossible. He must be worth something as a magician. Even though when we look at it and we can, and even the spectator maybe says it wasn't very pretty or it wasn't good or, you know, it wasn't something I haven't seen before. He still did the impossible thing. He did the impossible, yeah. yeah. And he gets accolades for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, and that's the thing is with this fraternity, the magic fraternity, they like to give everybody a chance, but they should have some uh, level, 
Yeah, yeah, because there's some really bad performers in this fraternity, the Magic Castle. Yeah, it's got better because it they're has. paying people. Yeah, you know where the pros would never come because they couldn't afford to come. You yeah. know, where I would give up 20 years ago a a week of my work and a wage just purely to come here because I thoroughly love the atmosphere here. I really do. I'm a massive fan of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it took a lot out of me as far as traveling wage expenses but today they give you a wage they put you in a hotel and they give you food yeah it's a no-win situation i mean it's a win-win situation sure, sure. but 20 years ago you had to do it for the love of it and i purely did it for the love of it yeah. you know and i'm glad i did i'm glad i did come here for uh for for what they offered me you mm-hmm. know but now people can think about what they want to do if they really want to come here they go well it's not breaking me yeah you know i break even probably but it's a place where everyone should come and perform. Yeah, I think everyone in the know. Yeah, you know it's a great place. I'm a huge fan of this this place. And Jack uh, Goldfinger, I mean, what a great job he's done. He's there's been a lot of bookers, but this guy is is the best so far for me. Well, you can never reach him. Mm-hmm. I reached him because I put on there Busty Sandra I, on a on a, a Skype, and he picked up. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I got older then. <laughs> he answered my call. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's great. Um, I want to talk a little bit about... So, your first sort of introduction was the Eddie McGuire manuscript. When I was nine years old, you know, my grandfather went to... Uh, he used to go to the horses, the races, and I always assumed he went to London when I was young to bet on the horses, and uh, he was nowhere near London, but... I asked him if you uh, can you next time you go to the races can you pick me up a book so my grandfather went to Davenport which is opposite the British Museum he he got wind of a, a magic shop opposite there so he went there and uh, they had sold him a, a book that had come in circulation that was a, a, a book at, book of the week that week and it was phantoms at the card table so he purchased that little pamphlet and sent that back to me and it's not a book you give a nine-year-old boy. No, it's you know, not. I couldn't read it, didn't understand it. So my sister would read me bits from it when I was young, and they told me some of the, the quotes and anecdotes at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just fascinated with this gentleman, Walter Irving Scott. Yeah. You know, um, and he it, it was part of my life. You know, I grew up with him in my head for all of my life. You know. Yeah. And I vowed to meet the guy one day. You know, although a lot. of people said he didn't exist it was a fragment of Eddie McGuire's imagination he he he, he, he come up with this uh, apparition Character. to get into uh, the association with Vernon and his group mm-hmm. so he's he sort of stirred the pot as they say just so he could be associated and get involved with Vernon Miller and and that group of card men mm-hmm. uh, in that era in 1929 1935 type era and uh, but I I kind of didn't believe that. I didn't believe that somebody could uh, come up with that imagination. That you know, like a fragment of someone's imagination. I really believed in the character Walter Irving Scott. I believed it. Um, so, and I vowed to say I'm going to go find him one day, and I did. Yeah. You know, my next quest is to discover Erdnays, people. <laughs> I got some really interesting stuff. I found a trunk, people. Found a big trunk of photographs and books and notes. And it could be associated with Erdnay. Stand, stand fast, Bill Kalush. <laughs> stand fast, Chris Kenner. I is bitter. 
Oh, okay. Well, so this leads into the uh, fascination with scams as a young man. <laughs> yeah, when I didn't, I didn't really. I, I was never a scam artist, but no, what no, I no. did is, is. Uh, did you I, run with the money team? I did. I did run with them for a couple, about two years. Yeah, and uh, I disassociated myself with them because they were purely thieves. Mm. They were just thieves, and uh, it's not how I wanted to go through life: stealing and thieving. You know, it's just not me. Sure. Um, so I left that group, but it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, I was a fledgling in, in that, growing up in that group, you know, and uh, so then I decided to move on, and that is when I f found out about uh, street performing and performing in pubs and, and performing. But what I learned from that group was crowd control and how mm -hmm. they, how they uh, organized the crowd and how it shaped and shifted and that. I found it fascinating, and I put all that into my street performing skills, which yeah. is irrelevant uh, today. Um, and uh, so I ended up becoming a, uh, I suppose, a world class street entertainer. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Because of it. Yeah, because of it. Yeah. Um, so, so being obsessed with Walter Irving Scott, I, I keep using the word obsessed. I, oh, well, maybe a, that's I was appropriate. No, it's okay. obsession. Yeah, why okay. not? All right. You know, rightly so. So ob obsessed with Walter Irving Scott, and you know you were just uh, really driven to meet him. What is that? What does that fire feel like? That passion to go and leave your country to you know go to a new place and well, there's so kind out. of a misconception there. I didn't really go to America to find sure. him. No, 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 no. I no, said no. if but I'm yeah. ever able to locate him, I would go and, and knock on his door mm -hmm. type thing. That was what it was. Okay. But I went purely, uh, I left England because back when in 1975 to 1985, um, street performing was illegal in okay. England. Um, you couldn't do it anywhere except Covent Garden and Camden Town. But they were shutting down Camden Town when I was there about 1980, 79, they shut down Canham Town, meaning that, that they, you couldn't perform there anymore. So that is when I went to uh, Covent Garden, but mm -hmm. you you line up to do one show, and I was doing five or six shows at Canham Town on a Saturday afternoon, um, and a Sunday, you know, I was doing a lot of shows, but when I went to Covent Garden, you could only do one show, and that didn't fit my, my realm, so mm -hmm. I went to Leicester Square, and the cops would shut me down, uh, you couldn't do it anyone. I got really frustrated. That is when I met a, uh, an, a street entertainer called Artist. He was a spoon player. And he used to do Cat's Cradle and tell poems. And he used to put a little mat down. He was like a hippie performer. And he and he would perform bare feet. You know, and I found it fascinating, his style. And uh, so I friended him and asked him about where could I go. And he told me to go to Key West, Florida, mm -hmm. if I ever get to the States. And he also told me to meet one of his friends, if you ever get to New York, Right, call this guy, and his name was Gregory Fleeman, and uh, so that is what I did. I went to America, phoned up Gregory Fleeman. That's a story in itself. That's a fascinating story. Well, yeah, uh, we have. I think we have a little bit of time if, you're, if okay. you want to tell the story. Yeah, I'll tell the story. <laughs> so, I got frustrated with England, and I decided to uh, take up artist, the spoon player. He was from Seattle. His offer. And he was actually over there filming the Poor Daniel show with Tom Noddy. And uh, that is when I went to Covent Garden. I saw Tom Noddy. It was windy, so he told everybody to come in 
under the pillars of the Covent Garden. He said, everybody come in, come in, you know, and get close. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I can't be dealing with this hippie shit. So I left. <laughs> but it was Tom Noddy, one of the greatest performers in the world ever on the history of performing. Mm -hmm. He's a bubble guy. Look him up. He's unbelievable. But I walked away from him that day. Then I saw him on the poor Daniel's magic show. And I'm like, oh my God, that's the guy I walked away from. <laughs> Thought he was an aging hippie stuck in the 60s. Unbelievable. He was unbelievable. So uh, uh, that's when I went about that time to America. Yeah. And I didn't have a lot of money. I sold everything that I had, uh, that I owned on my magic books and my furniture and left my place in Fairhazel Gardens in Swiss Cottage where I lived uh, and went to America with about $100 in my pocket. And uh, all I had was a, a, a piece of paper saying Gregory Fleeman was, I was to call him. But I ended up getting to America, and I didn't know anybody. It was before cell phones, you know, before GPSs, uh, before the internet. And uh, I stood there, I got off the plane, and they wouldn't let me through immigration for, I was there for about four or five hours maybe. Mm -hmm. It could have been longer, I don't remember. But it was really frustrating because I had sold everything. I told everybody I'm, I'm going to America, and immigration would not let me in. <laughs> they didn't believe my story. Mm -hmm. And they said, who are you going to stay with? Because, see, the thing is, if you're going to go on holiday, right, you, you don't wing it. You get a hotel, you get a hostel name. You could do all these things if you're really going on a holiday. Yeah. But I wasn't going on a holiday. I was going over there to live. So I didn't think about all these things. <laughs> so when I think about it now, if I was really going to America for a break, for a holiday, I would have who I'm going to stay with, where I'm, how am I going to get around? You know all these things. Sure. But I did have some greyhound. Uh, my friend Mark Russell, who had a travelling agency in England, sold me some greyhound bus tickets to get around America. I could add like fifteen or twenty greyhound bus tickets that were like two hundred bucks for the, all these twenty tickets, and I could travel on any bus anywhere I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. um, so I had those, which was which was good, but they didn't believe my story because they say, "Where are you staying? Where are you going now?" And I said, "Well, I'm off to Florida." And they go, "Where are you going to go when you go to Florida?" I go, "Well, I'm going to go to Coconut Grove, then I'm going to go to uh, Key West, Florida." They, who are you staying with? Well, I got this, you know, and my story is choppy. They didn't believe it, so they said, "We can't let you in." I'm like heartbroken because I, I just left England. Yeah, and. Uh, and then uh, I had Gregory Fleeman's number, and I said, well, this is, this is a guy that I can stay with here. And they said, if we call him up now, would he be able to vouch for that? And I said, well, he doesn't know I'm going to call. It's a friend <laughs> of a friend. And they said, well, how will he know that you, how do you know you can stay there? I said, he may not. Then I have to go to Florida tonight, you know, get on the bus. They said, you're not going anywhere. You're going back on a flight to England. I'm like, come on. And finally, finally, after about two hours, they finally let me in. They believed my story. And... And uh, I had a, a letter saying from a, a, a drainage company, I was doing weekend work uh, of putting cameras down drains, you know, mm -hmm. to find it, the faults in drains. And that was, uh, I was considered a drain technician. Uh, and that I had a letter from them saying that, good luck on your three week uh, holiday in the States, your job will be secure when you get back. They found that letter and said, okay, we believe you. Yeah. And that was like, oh my God, they found that letter. That was good, I forgot I had it. But they. But the, the owners of that drain company was CAD, Clear All Drains, a gentleman called Bradley Rayner. And uh, he told me that they go to America a lot to skydive and immigration will be tight to get in. So you need to have this letter from us. And they and I had it in one of my shirt pockets and they found that. And boy, he was 
he was a good guy. He saved my ass. Uh, Bradley Rayner. His brother was Terry Rayner. There's like four or five brothers that had this big drainage company in London I worked for. Yeah. And I give my notice in, and they told me, good luck in your, in your career in America, and you'll love it. It's a great country. You do well, and take this letter just in case you get stuck. And that's what carried it. So I got through immigration, and uh, I'm stood in, in uh, Times Square yeah. in uh, Penn Station, uh, and I didn't know anybody. I had my two suitcases. I had a street performing table where the legs had been folded up in the, in the, in the bottom of the table, in the bottom of the uh, suitcase. I had folding legs so it could fit in a suitcase. And if they would have searched that, they would have found that, and then I wouldn't have had a story for that, you know. But they didn't find all. They didn't search my luggage. I got through frustrated and it's like seven o'clock at night and it's it's raining it's cold it's november i remember it and i i didn't know nothing about america i expected america to be sunny and it's like california <laughs> movies you know when you see a movie from california that's what you think america's like growing up in england but yeah. that's that's california in new york it's like english weather it's freezing it's snowing <laughs> it's november and i'm just going where's it where's where do, where's the warmth where's the sun you know Anyway, so I asked a policeman, and apparently a, a, sh a cop had just been murdered in uh, in that area, and there was an abundance of uh, cops from all the precincts have been rallying around, trying yeah. to figure out what's going on. The cop had been killed or murdered, and uh, and the cops didn't have time for anything. So I asked this cop, and it was like he was about six foot two, you know, and it was it was massive, you know, big cop, big massive, you know, three hundred pound cop. And I said, "Excuse me, sir." Where can I stay for the night? He said, YMCA down there. So I go to the YMCA and uh, I get a taxi there. I didn't have a lot of money, you know. So I get a taxi to the YMCA and uh, it was like $28 for the night, you know. But it was my own room. I didn't want to share because I didn't. I, did, I heard about America being there's a lot of thieves and you have to protect your stuff. So I got my own room and it ended up being about $48. It took half, nearly half my money, whatever. So I get into the YMCA, I shut the door and I lay down on the bed and I'm sort of jet lagged, but I think I've got to go call Gregory Fleeman. So I get off the bed. I didn't go in the bed, I just lay on the bed. So the bed's like, the sheets are ruffled, yeah. white sheets. So I go downstairs and there's a bar across the way and it's, now it's like 10 o'clock at night. So I go to this bar and uh, and I don't know how to use the phones. I don't need understand you need cord. It was before calling cards. It was all intimidating because nobody shows you how to work anything, you know. Sure. So I, I didn't have any American currency. Uh, so I, I told the lady, the bar lady, the story of why I'm coming to America. I'm going to go to Florida, Key West and Street before. And I said, but I have this number. I don't know how the phones work. So she says, give me the number, I'll phone it for you. She went down to the end of the bar, she pulled out a white phone, brought it, it was about 30 feet of cord, cord yeah. you know. <laughs> she brings it up, and I've never seen such a long cord, and I'm just laughing hysterically. It's unbelievable, it's massive, really long cord. So I go like that, and she dials the number, and it's Gregory Fleeman, he goes, hello. I said, hi, is this Gregory? He goes, yeah, who's calling? And I said, uh, this is a friend of a friend. I said, artist, artist, he owes me money. Where is that bastard? I'm like, oh my God, you know, what's your story? I said, well, he give me your phone number and I'm looking for somewhere to stay. If you could show me around. He goes, I'm busy right now. I'm in the middle of writing a, a screenplay. I ain't got time for this. And he put the phone down on me and I'm like, but he, he said, where are you staying? What's going on? I said, I'm staying at the YMCA. And, and he told me, an artist told me to give you your you call. He said, I'm, I'm with my partner, I ain't got time for it. I'll give you a call tomorrow. I said, I don't have a phone. He goes, well, I'll, I'll call me in the morning, I'll bye. I put the phone down, that's how it was. 
So she goes, that didn't go well. I said, no. I said, so I had a beer. Yeah. And it was a boxing. It was like a boxing uh, pub. And they had like photographs of all the Italian boxers. Yeah. And it was a good in there. So I stayed in there for another hour or so. <laughs> and it was like kind of midnight. And I, I go back to the YMCA and I'm jet lagged and I go to sleep. Then there's a knock at the door. Like that. And I think, ooh. Who the hell knows me that I'm here? You yeah. know, I'm paranoid. I open the door and I look down. There's just a passageway of no, nothing. No one in the corridor. Just the elevators down there and the exit sign down there. And I'm like, what's weird? I shut the door and I look down. There's a piece of paper saying somebody wants to speak to you down in the office, downstairs in the lobby. And I'm thinking, fucking immigration have found me. <laughs> I'm fucked. Right? Yeah. So I... I I lock the door, mm -hmm. right, and I go down really nervously. I don't want to go back to England at this stage. Uh, so I go down, and there's this big guy, and he puts his hand out, shakes his, shakes my hand. He says, Gazzo? So yeah, he goes, Gregory Fleeman. I go, oh, it was like a little angel now. I didn't know anybody, and he, and he says, look, sorry for being shirty. He said, you know, I'm with my partner. He had come all the way from New Jersey, and we're writing a play, a screenplay, and we're submitting it tomorrow to California. Um, but I... My partner had talked me into coming to get you because, like, how would you like? He said, "How would you like it if you didn't know anybody in England?" And, you know, go get the guy. You know, it's like, what, well, Greg? We can. This can wait. Go get him. So that's what I'm doing here. I'm sorry if I was abrupt. I said, no problem. He says, well, "Get your money back for the room." And I go, "What?" I just laid on the bed. He says, "That's all right. Give him his money back." And I'm like, Jesus Christ! This, how does this work in America? Get my money back? I've been in the room. So he comes out and he gives me my forty-eight dollars or whatever it costs. I can't remember. Yeah. And uh, so now I've got my forty-eight dollars and I'm happy and I'm going to go and stay with Gregory for a few days. You know, he sort me out. Yeah. He said we. I live in. I'm just living in uh, Soho area then in Manhattan. And he said we get a taxi. And uh, Greg, it was raining. He puts his umbrella up. And the taxi's got a light on, and he comes past, it doesn't stop, so Gregory smacks his fucking umbrella on the top of the cab. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, this is America, this is what I hear about, aggressive, aggressive Americans, you know. And the, and the cab driver pulls, screeches his brakes, he gets, he's an Asian guy, yeah. and he opens the boot and he gets a tire iron. <laughs> and he comes up, and there's Gregory with the umbrella, like this. And the guy with the tire iron, they're squaring up with each other. And I'm like, I got my t suitcases like this going fucking in the rain. It's pissing with rain. And they're squaring up. And Gregory's going, you should fucking stop. By law, you should stop. Your light was on. I flagged you down. And the guy goes, you hit the top of my umbrella. And I'm going, look, guys, just come on. I, I'm from England. I don't need this shit. So we get in the cab and they apologize to each other. And they get to Gregory's house. And we go up to his like 44th story building. Mm -hmm. And I meet his partner. And then Gregory is telling me about this screen they're writing for this movie. And, uh, and I'm jet lagged, so he's telling me this story about the mafia are chasing this guy and, and they shoot the gun and he's got a, a blood bag here, yeah. shoots it, and the blood comes out and then they realize it's real blood and they say, wait a minute, someone's put real bullets in the gun. Uh-oh. And, and he's telling me this story and I'm like going, yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to stay awake, you know, yeah. I don't want to be rude, but I'm jet lagged and sure. it's like really late for me. Mm -hmm. So then I start falling asleep and I fall asleep on his couch. And then, but I somehow sort of re remember the story he told me. And then I end up going to uh, Key West after staying with Gregory for a week. And it was great, great host, great yeah. time. We went to all this, because he used to be a street entertainer playing guitar, but he wrote screenplays. Uh, and that was his other living. Mm -hmm. And then I get to Key West and... Uh, and it's really hot. I'm going to cut this shorey stalk because we got to open up the room for the yeah, thing. That's okay. But we get to Key West, 
And my friend says, when we go to Key, when we're in Key West, when it's really hot, we go because it's really piping hot there, you yeah. know. And we get into Key West, and uh, I, I befriend a friend, my one of my best friends even today is Birdie McLean, Richard Parrott, his name is. He's a Ringling Brothers clown, and uh, we performed on the pier, and he. And he said at night we go drinking and have a good time, you know, meet women and blah, blah, blah. But in the day when it's really hot, we go to movies. You want to go to a movie? There's a movie playing. So I'm in the movies watching it, watching the movie. And I tell my friend what's going to go on in the movie. And he said, how the fuck do you know that? It's just released. I said, I don't know. I know the movie. He goes, how? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and at the end of the movie, it was written by Gregory Fleeman. Oh, wow. And the movie was with Brian Dennehy and it was called FX. Wow. The movie Brian Dennehy. Yeah, yeah. I was in the guy's apartment when they released that movie to the, to California. That's amazing. Uh, Warner Brothers, I think, bought the script, and that's wow. how it came about. So that's the story of Gregory Fleeman. The story about seeing the movie. Yeah. Actually, she hasn't done my makeup yet. Let me f get my makeup finished, and we can carry on. Okay. So they do it in LA. They they. Uh, like to for you to look the part. My hairdresser and my makeup artist is uh, just finishing up and carrying on with this discussion. Yeah, the movie. What was the movie? Yeah, uh, FX with yeah. Brian Dennehy. Yeah, yeah. That was a special effects movie where they they hired a special effects guy to do a into the movie, and uh, it it all backfires on him. They put real bullets in the gun. They end up killing the actor and he gets blamed for it and he uses his special effects to elude the police and the mafia that are after him. But uh, Gregory Fleeman told me all about the ins and outs of that movie, so I knew about it. It was stuck in my, etched in my brain mm -hmm. while I was there in falling asleep <laughs> in, a, in a state of being jet lagged. But I kind of uh, in, retained everything he was telling me and I remembered it when I watched the movie and when it was released in Key West. A year later, or whatever, whenever it was. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so you went down to Key West and were performing, and that was going well. You were having a good time. It rained the first day I got there. It was pouring with rain, and uh, I didn't have any money. And uh, there was a guitarist under shelter, and I went up to him, and I had all my gear, and obviously, you know, I was a performer. He said, you here to perform? I said, yeah, I'm from England. And I said, I'm a bit decided with this weather. He said, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to be dry in about 10 minutes, and it was. It was a monsoon rain. It was peltering down, and then it dried in 10 minutes, and it was completely dry everywhere. And then thousands, tens of thousands of people come out. And I made like 200, 300 bucks that night. And I'm thinking, this is heaven for me. I'm staying here for a long time. And each night I made good money. And uh, it was before the, all the rules and regulations come in. And uh, it was good for me. I fit, fitted in there. And I stayed in Key West for about six months. And then Birdie, my friend Birdie McLean, told me that the Ringling Brothers clown told me that they go to Boston in the summers. You can't stay in Key West in the summer. It's too hot. Mm -hmm. So we go to Boston up north. When the weather breaks, and that is where I went, I, I uh, moved between Boston and Key West for about seven years. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Is that when you... When did you start developing and honing the cups and balls routine? Uh, that year. That year? Yeah. I, I, I actually, it was Johnny Fox that took me to see Danny Dew. Uh, Danny Dew was still living in Arizona. He was still alive, and I went to do a festival with Johnny Fox and it was Mill Avenue Fair in Tempe 
and then uh, I think if Phoenix was uh, no Tempe was Fourth Avenue and Phoenix was Mill Avenue, one of the two I can't remember. And there was a festival in the, in the fall. Johnny told me to come out, hang with him, and he took me to see Danny Do, and I bought a set of Paul Fox cups off Danny Do that mm -hmm. was made. Uh, Danny Do had obtained the the dyes to make the Paul Fox cups, which were the chick cups. They yeah, were yeah. bigger cups. And that's when I realized that the cups now has become more of a stand-up trick, you know, more of a platform mm -hmm. for a bigger crowd. And that's when my, my money started going up because I developed a routine with the hat load, which I, the melon load, I kind of based it on Cellini. Cellini used to uh, produce a melon. And uh, I remember reading a pamphlet when I was a kid about a street performer spinning a coin. This is just from an, uh, a reporter's uh write-up in, mm -hmm. in a newspaper article that he said a performer shows up in town, has a little table, spins a coin on the table, puts his hat over the coin and asks the gentleman, is it heads or tails? This is exactly as I read it when I was very young and I yeah. based my hat load on that, you know. Um, and the, the onlooker would say it's heads and the performer would put his hand uh, under the hat. If it was head, he would turn it to tails. If it was tails, he would just lift his hat and say, no, it's tails. We'd do it again, see if you can guess it. You can win the penny. And he spins the coin on the table, takes his hat off, puts it on the table as the coin's spinning, and said, is it heads or tails? <coughs> he said, if you can guess right, you win the penny. And the person said, it's heads. And, the, and he would lift up the hat and it would be tails. He said, let's try it one more time last time. And he would spin the coin and he said, is it heads or tails? And the, and the guy said, tails. And the guy would put his hand under, under his hat and pretend to make the motion of stealing the coin and putting it in his pocket. Mm -hmm. And he would lift, and, and then he said, I lift the hat and the penny would be gone. Would that be a good trick? He said, you just took it and put it in your pocket. And he said, no, I didn't. He lifted his hat to show the penny was still on the table, misdirection, and then, and then he would load a guinea pig under the hat <laughs> and then put that on the table, pick up the coin, give the guy the penny and said, uh, but you might want to donate that and maybe a few more shillings into my hat if I show you this lift his hat revealing the guinea pig and that is exactly as the reporter described it mm -hmm. and I, I understood it from very yeah. young spinning the coin strong misdirection pretending to take the coin out and that's misdirection yeah yeah <laughs> I understood it and that is what I based my melon hat load on um, but it was Ch Ch Jim Cellini an old friend that used to perform and end up taking a bow loading a grapefruit under his hat and then producing the grapefruit from his hand like that, and then putting the grapefruit on the table. Mm -hmm. But I thought that's a good way to end, you know, with a big load, and I thought, well, I'll do it this way. I'll incorporate it into the routine of the cups and balls, and that is what everyone bought or stole. Or stole. <laughs> Most of them stole it. Yep. I have a list of people that bought the routine, mm -hmm. you know, but most of them stole it. Yeah, I stole it. Did you? I did. I tried to make up for it, though, by buying a pouch and the cups. <laughs> You made up for it. Thank you. You're very honorable. Thank you. I didn't. I didn't know where to buy it at the time, and I had the, a PDF of. As a matter of fact, I had a PDF of the book, mm. and I just stumbled upon the book, and I'm I'm, a, I'm like about to buy it. <laughs> right. So, the money won't go to you, but no, well, I'll, I'll feel me. better. Well, Penguin eventually. actually bought yeah. the 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 rights to the routine and all the rights to my other stuff. But we had a five-year deal, and now I'm sort of away from Penguin mm -hmm. to do other 
ventures, but um, I'm still loyal to Penguin because they've looked after me really well, more than any other company. Great. Despite what people think of that online company, they've been honorable to me, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and loyal, and I'm going to remain loyal to them. Sure, of course. Yeah. That's good. Um, oh, okay. I, I've been itching to ask about the meeting Walter Irving Scott and the yeah. deals and learning ab- yeah. about that and from him. Yeah, and, a lot of people have been itching for that. If but, it's uh, not something you want to talk about, we don't have to talk about I'm it. I'm willing to talk about it. You know, I'm, I've got nothing to hide from that. You yeah, know, yeah. that was a turning point in my life and it was fascinating to meet him. Mm-hmm. The one they all talk about. Yeah. It was like me and Elvis in it, you know, I suppose. <laughs> but so, uh, yeah, yeah, it was great. It was a good moment in my life, you know. And... Uh, it fulfilled a, a lifelong ambition. I wanted to meet Walter Scott, not knowing if he was alive or anything like that. I just wanted to meet him, and uh, I did. I found him. You know, found him living in a, in a retirement. Actually, he was living on his own in a home mm-hmm. above a late an old lady. It was like four farmhouses together. No bus service, no shops, just a farm road, and there was four houses up and down duplexes. And uh, he was living on one of those houses with a spiral staircase leading up to his apartment on the second floor. Mm-hmm. And I go up to see him, and he's a, it's a long room, about as long as this. And in the back of the room was two louver doors like that, French do- window doors. Mm-hmm. And uh, behind that was a card table. And uh, I sat down and I did my deals for him, and I was quite proficient at performing the deals, not in the rhythm that he would be satisfied with because sure. it was a rhythm thing that I didn't understand mm-hmm. learning from the book of course. but he told me the correct method and the rhythm of performing and how to practice the right moves mm-hmm. that's what come into play with me and him it helped my deals but he told me that um, be careful because it's they're cursed you know the deal the, the system I developed I got from my uncle who was named Bill Smith he said he said it's been given to me from him but he was t- told that it become, it come from somebody that sold their soul to the devil. So be careful, the work is cursed. And I ended up having a stroke 20 years ago. Um, if I can attain it to that, I don't know. But it was, I've come out somehow believing curse and things like that. Yeah. You know, it ruined me and, you know, but it didn't ruin him. He, he remained with it for, till he was in his 90s, late 90s. I think he was about the same age as Vernon. He might have been a year older than Vernon. But what's ironic about the whole thing is everybody that said he didn't exist, all the, all the write-ups, Bruce, um, what's his name, Bruce uh, Simon, hmm. Bruce, is it Bruce Simon, he said he was a, a, a thief and a common, commoner and all this, they, you know, and uh, he outlived everyone. All the people that said he didn't exist, he outlived everyone, <laughs> literally outlived everyone. Yeah. He lived longer than most of them. You know, they yeah. all went before him, and he wouldn't try to challenge him. You know, I can't. I can't, oh gosh, finding finding somebody that you you know you you mentioned you had kind of lived with him in your head. Yeah, that's a, that's incredible. And then sitting down. Yeah, it was it was spectacular. Him. You know, because I think I'm one of the only ones, if not the only one, that ever really got to understand and him understand me and sit down and ask him his story and I've got audio tapes of that those meetings oh wow you know 
um, well, Dave Britland has them in his collection. Mm-hmm. We hope to release them one day with me performing. I can't perform the deals, but I can instruct how to do it. Yeah. So that is uh, a work that I would like to put out there one day, you know? Yeah. That's... Demonstrating and how to go about putting the deals together and yeah. what the effect can can have on people, you know? Yeah. It, it was designed purely for uh, a cheating at cards, but um, I mean, it's... When the thing is with Walter's work, the system is, is uh, Cardini said that Walter Scott's work is 100 years, 500 years ahead of Erdne's work. And people say that's pretos- pretos- preposterous. Preposterous, yeah, that's, that's idiotic to say something like that. Yeah. But it's, all, it's, it's already been over 100 years, yeah. so it's not clo- too far off, yeah, yeah, that yeah. statement, you know. Um, and I do believe it's the best, system of Kachi and ever that's been in existence I really believe it you know it's yeah. very strong and uh, it'd be great to release you know the, the right way of performing it you saw the Phantom do it himself I would imagine no I didn't, oh, he, didn't? Was, he was too decrepit to okay. perform anything his hands were all rough right to see and uh, but his knowledge was there his, his head was still on his shoulders mm-hmm. and his knowledge and his insights and okay. he was repetitive with his with what he was talking about, it was very repetitive. As you can understand, he was 90-something. Mm-hmm. So, but I got him, you know, at the best of him before he passed. Yeah. Um, I took Steve Freeman down there, Percy Dalekona's come with us. Um, I took uh, uh, Johnny Fox down there. I took some guys from Boston, you know. He didn't get a lot of visitors, but I did take a lot of people down there to visit him. So um, I wasn't the only one that saw him. Um, yeah, he was a great human, and he was a gentleman. He was a pure gentleman in in the sense he looked like a banker. He, you you'd expect him to be what you'd expect a, a con man to look like or a card cheat, but he looked he was completely opposite. He was a a, a music uh, teacher. He had a music studio, and that was his that was his living. He used to write and perform music, and his uh, instrument of choice was a Hawaiian guitar. And he used to tell me he used to paint his face black and perform as an Hawaiian in the band because you couldn't be a white guy performing it. Mm-hmm. But they used to make him paint his face black, you know, darken his skin. Sure. Whatever, boot polish, whatever he used, I don't know. And uh, he darkened his skin and he was on stage with low light and people thought he was Hawaiian. And his band was called Walter Irving Scott and the Cheetahs. And the Cheetahs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And there's an old uh, article that you can pull up. Mm-hmm. There was also an article that uh, that was surfaced. We didn't put it in the uh, book because we might have thought Walter Scott was too old. But uh, ironically enough, uh, there was an article in a, in a newspaper, uh, I believe it was in San Francisco, maybe, or California, Los Angeles, where Wired Up, the, the famous out, yeah, yeah, yeah. outlaw slash sheriff lawman was arrested with a young fella by the name of Walter Scott. And they were arrested for, for scamming uh, uh, cattlemen and railroaders and uh, cowboys of their hard-earned money. And in evidence, we have a deck of cards. In this deck of cards, they used pinpricks slight bumps to determine high and low cards so it's possible it he would have been about 15 or 16 
Wow. But you know, if his uncle told him that, taught him that principle when he was very young, and he went across to California, who knows if it's the same guy? A lot of people don't think it was. But what's the chance of having a deck of cards and the guy being Walter Scott was? But my theory is there's two Walter Scotts. Okay. I have a theory of there's two Walter Scotts, and also there's another one. If you look in the John Scan. Uh, books there's a there's about four or five books that John Scan put out in one of those books in the back there's a photograph of an old man mm-hmm. older than John Scan and John yeah. Scan was probably in his 40s at this time okay and there was a guy twice as old as him and he said here is a photograph of John Scan and his aide what was Scott so you think it's just like a uh, a common name a, a, a common, it's a common name. name. I don't know. I, 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 but you know, John Scar knew a Walter Scott that helped him in his writing of his books yeah, and yeah. Uh, his knowledge in the in the gambling world. It was a famous Walter Scott that helped him. He was. He said he's a famous cheat that helped him. So you don't think they're related? It's just no, they're not related. It's just there's so far there's been three Walter Scott surfaces that are all associated with card cheating. Yeah, see, I was hoping you were gonna like oh. say they're all related. It's some, it's like the Illuminati or something. <laughs> That's what I was hoping for. Yeah, well, that would be that would be a good way to end it. But I don't know. I don't. I can't put it all together. You know. Yeah, sure. What's the chance of having a, a Walter Scott that's associated with the art of fleecing the public? I think. Yeah, I think the Wyatt Earp thing. That's reasonable. Well, I don't I think, know. I, I mean, I think it could be. I don't know, you know, I didn't know the man like you did, but I like to believe that that maybe. Well, we all assume, see, when, when, he, when he did the, when, when Walter did to dem- perform the demonstration at Professor Quimby's house in 1929, or was it 1932, one of those times, you know, three years between. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, when he did the demonstration, we assume that he was in his 40s or 50s. But he was in his twenties. You see. Yeah. So you know you put you have some idea in your head of when when you see somebody as a, like Cardini when you see him perform. We don't you don't know how old he is. He looked the same throughout his entire career. Yeah. When you see that good footage, you know is he sixty years old? Is he fifty, forty years old? You don't know. Yeah. You can't put an age on somebody. You know. Sure. So you 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 know you you assume Walter Scott was in his forties. Because yeah. that's when you f- consider that he must have been at his prime. Yeah, exactly. But he was in his 20s. Wow. You know, yeah. 28. Wow. And, awesome. uh, you know, and the, what, the, the, what the type of work he was doing back then is just, it was baffling to people that, that witnessed it, you know, whether he switched decks or not. I can understand he, he, he could do the work, there's no doubt about it, because I could do the work. Yeah. But when you're in front of you know five or six magicians that want to see the work, and they've paid a hundred bucks each to see the work, to see the demonstration, which is nine twenty nine is a lot of money. It's a lot of bucks. Money. It's a lot of money. Yeah. So they wanted to see what he could do. So obviously they switched decks because when you cheat a card, it takes you all night to get an edge. You know, when you're in front of magicians, they want to see aces every hand. See what I mean? Yeah. Because if you don't put aces every hand, it gets tedious, and they they get up and deplete. But with, uh, with Walter's demonstration, they want to see what he can do. He did the deals, bottoms and seconds. He did a few mucks and stacking. He did all this stuff. But for the demonstration, they wanted to see it. So they switched decks. So I hear, I've been told. And uh, he said he did it with a 
borrowed deck, but it was a switch deck. Yeah. Purposely to just get to the demonstration because that's what all magicians want to see. Sure. You know, I understand it. You know, he understood it, but people watching it don't understand it. You can't. You know what was philosophy was this? He said, you know, I can end up playing sitting down in the poker game, but how do you get invited back a week later? How do you get invited back for the rest of the year? You play each week. How do you keep getting invited back? If you keep ended with aces, you're not going to get invited back. Yeah. What's going on here? Yeah. You can't keep ending up with aces. Three twos are stronger than three aces. I understand that. Sure. You know, three twos might get beat, right? Mm -hmm. If it's tough for three aces to get beat, unless you have a, a, a straight or a flush, you know, but three aces is is a weak hand if you're amongst fast company. Sure. But if you end up with three twos, that's okay. You know, mm -hmm. three twos is still the same as three aces yeah. in such respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you deal yourself those winning hands all the time, you're not going to get invited back next week. Sure. That's the psychology of a card player. You need to remain in that game for years to come so you can fleece them slowly. Slowly, every time. You know, and that's them. what magicians don't understand. Mm -hmm. They want to see aces. They want to see aces. They want to see a raw flush. Yeah. That stuff doesn't happen in the doesn't, real world. It doesn't happen in the yeah. real world. No. Yeah. I'm so fascinated by this. I <laughs> I would love to see you and David put out those tapes and do the one instruction. Day. Yeah, we're going to do it one day, yeah. And I will I'm starting to make the uh the pegs as well. Yeah. Oh, glory. <laughs> yeah. 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 Starting to make them. Awesome. But how you apply them on your thumb and all that so the knowledge is not it's lost of course, i give yeah. away all that mm -hmm. and the, and the principle how to make the pegs you know yeah. which is if the listeners don't understand it's a, it's a blister it's a way of marking cards in game in the game and you feel it with your thumb with your finger and you have a, it's like braille on cards mm -hmm. so yeah it's fascinating that was part of what was work yeah golly I, the and this isn't I mean this is by no means a a technical you know give up the work podcast like I said no, it's philosophical no. anecdotal yeah. but I just I, I have to ask about the the hesitation you know just are you just practicing the rhythm are you slowing it down and then feeling and it's that's the just thing you know with uh, what what was it's an interesting question you're asking but what what would give to me was the correct rhythm and the correct tone of practicing the the way you can practice the wrong move something yeah. and it, it, it looks oh you got the aces from a shuffle deck but it looked unnatural doing it yeah won't stand in a card game but what what was work was all about was naturalness mm -hmm. and and in perfect harmony of the game and the procedure of the game you had to fit into that procedure so what would taught me the right training technique, mm -hmm. you know, and how to go about it, how to sit up with your shoulders square, etc., etc. You know, when do you make the peak? Yeah. What's the timing of when you make the peak? All these things come into play with what was teaching me. And, uh, and it was the correct way of practicing. Once you've got that rhythm and understanding, mm -hmm. knowledge and understanding, having the knowledge is one thing, but understanding it is another. Yeah. Knowledge and understanding. And then uh, once you have obtained all those uh, principles in card play, then you can go about performing and practicing the right way. Mm -hmm. 
but it's no good practicing the wrong moves. Of course, know? absolutely. Yeah. Waste of time. Yeah, sure. And not a lot of people are practicing the right, the wrong moves. The a classic example, what I'm going to get at, is a gentleman called Steve Forte. He's, he's a legendary card man. Everyone knows him. Mm-hmm. But if you see his rhythm, it's in perfect harmony of casino procedure. Yeah. It's how they train you to... Casino operators shuffle the cards the same way, square up the same way. They do this it perfectly the same way, purposely because the, the industry trained them to do this so it suits the overhead camera. Yeah. And if it's anything irregular, the pit boss will come down and change the dealer. Mm-hmm. And then put that dealer in the room and say, why aren't you going through the re- the reasonable procedure of the game? Yeah. We've trained you, carry on doing that, otherwise you're gonna be turfed out. True. So it has to be in perfect harmony. Mm-hmm. So the eye in the sky understands it, they, they clear it. The pit boss doesn't get an ear call. And they carry on doing the demonstration. F- to understand that, you see Steve Forte work. Mm-hmm. And he does that procedure perfectly. Yeah. And that is why it's eluding a lot of magicians because it's not something that we are familiar with. Yeah. If we were in the industry a lot, like uh, Mr. Z, Mike Zapak, he's in the industry, he, he understands the procedure of the game. So mm-hmm. he's practicing the correct way. Sure. And that's what, um, with what was demonstration, I will teach people with the DVDs to practice the right way, you know. And they get to the end result a lot quicker than they would if they didn't understand the harmony of it. Of course, sure. That makes perfect sense. Because that's what I want to release, you know? Yeah, yeah. You want people to understand, not just have the knowledge. Yeah, Yeah. if I'm going to release it, I'm going to get paid for it. They're going to pay for it uh, diligently. And uh, and it's going to, you know, cost them, but it's going to be worth their time and effort. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the price is there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm just personally curious. He was a musician. He was a teacher. Did what did music and musicality play into his, you know, teaching you about sitting at the card table? I guess I'm asking for the tempo and the rhythm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, did um, he speak in those terms, or did he? Ross Bertram, a Canadian magician, was a musician, and he used to have tempo and beats. Mm-hmm. As far as his music is concerned, he brought that into magic. And I never knew, knew Ross Bertram, and I never met him, but I understand that he was fantastic. Everybody uh, put him on a very high pedestal and said he was fantastic. But the stuff in his book looks like it's difficult, but they all tell me he could actually do all that stuff in his book. And that he was a nice gentleman, but he was a musician, and he talked about beats, mm-hmm. you know, drumming beat. He talks about a saxophone beat or a clarinet beat. Sure. To, to incorporate that that type of beat in practice and the magic so it's not it's not the first you know Walter Scott understood those beats mm-hmm. and uh, I don't understand those beats because I'm not a musician sure. but I understand the correct way to practice mm-hmm. I t- truthfully understand that you yeah. know it's very important that someone has to practice the right way yeah but going back to streets is streets allows you to practice the right way because if you don't you get caught mm-hmm so you eliminate certain unnecessary moves. Yeah, so that's what streets does to you through attrition of performing over and over again the same routines 30 or 40 times a week. It's you know, tight and crisp. It becomes tight and crisp and you know your angles, you know your un- unsteady movements, you eliminate all these things and then you become, if anything, a good performer. You can't become a bad performer 
when you're practicing the same moves and performing the same shows, you become good. Mm-hmm. But there are a few people that don't still don't get it. They still are bad, you know? Yes. But for any novice out there wanting to become good, you will become good if you do the same routines over and over again. I'm talking... For real people. For real people. Yeah, you can't practice the same routines on the same people because they're going to... You're not learning it. You're, not, learning. you're not gaining yeah. anything. Yeah. 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 So... Uh, but I brought into that philosophy about what were taught me into my street routines as well. Practice the right rhythm, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's turned out to be very valuable for me. Um, I understand it, and that's why I'm 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 a huge fan of the greats like Bob Reed, mm-hmm. uh, Roy Benson, Al Goshman, Slidini. You know, oh, I'm, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of Vernon and uh, uh, Charlie Miller and. Uh, uh, Larry Jennings and Marlowe I'm a big fan of all that stuff but if I was ever to go a convention and they were all living the first room I would go in it would be Slidini's or Al Goshman and Vernon and, and uh, Larry Jennings would probably be not on my repertoire I would not be interested in going in to see them you see what I mean yes. because what they did and performed is not it doesn't take my interest mm-hmm. although it's technically proficient and it's fantastic stuff but not for lay people you know, a room full of magicians you and you hire a big name to get people to come see them would be Vernon or Larry Jennings, although Larry would never go to a convention. He did a few before he passed. But uh, they're not they're not on my list of people I would want to see. On my list would be Malini, you know, oh, yeah. Roy Benson, mm-hmm. Albert Goshman, Juan Tamarez, you know. Sure. You understand yes, Slidini, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these people and the greatest of them all was Bob Reed. Technically, he wasn't the best, but boy, he had rhythm. Mm-hmm. If you want to find out if somebody that had rhythm, study that man's work. Yeah. Then you'll understand what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's what it's all about, is rhythm. Really? And that's what Walt Scott and uh, Ross Bertram talked about, rhythm, practicing techniques. Mm-hmm. And Fred Capps, another one who had rhythm, but he was also a fantastic entertainer. He understand facial expressions, he understand time in stance, how, how to dress, you know, he understands, you know, how to steal loads and, and, and sleeving techniques and toppet techniques. He understands all these things. And he put all those things into his act and, and that is why it fooled people, mm-hmm. you know? And that's what's, it's, to me, it's an os- a lost art, all that stuff. Because you're not, you can't get that stuff from the internet today. You can't understand pocket management and, and uh, how to dress properly and yeah. all this it's a lost art you know it's yeah, a shame yeah. because you know they're not le- they're not teaching this stuff on a DVD you buy for 20 bucks you're getting a, a Okido box routine and <laughs> you know what I'm saying yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's just uh, you know, yeah, yeah well it's the it's the art of being a, a, a fully fledged performer it's not just about doing a trick yeah. and calling yourself a magician it's about Every every moment that you're in front of these people is, you know, they're taking in information and they're experiencing yeah. whatever you're doing, and it's yeah. about, yeah, I, yeah. Caps Caps is probably in my mind one of the the, the best exponents of what you're talking about. In- well, I disagree. I think Roy Benson was. I think sure. Roy, Roy Benson is on a very much higher echelon than Caps. Sure. You know, but Caps was nothing taken away from me. He was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in, in as far as the top people, it would be Roy Benson. And I believe Caps molded his style on Roy Benson. If you see 
Cap style and Roy Benson style, there's a lot of similarities. Um, but Roy Benson was a vaudeville f- performer, mm. you see. He, he, he performed all the time in front of lay people. And, uh, and Caps was great. I don't know if Caps performed a lot for lay people. I don't know that. He may have done. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I know he was a successful uh, uh, performer at conventions. Mm-hmm. And they lined, they lined him up. And people flocked to go see him work. I met Caps in uh, Southampton Row, uh, Cheney Muse, outside the uh, the old uh, Magic Circle. I watched him and Fred Robinson go back to back on the top change when I was about 14 years old. Wow. And, yeah, it was great. And uh, he was great. Fred Caps was great. That's but awesome. my, one of my idols is one of the greatest ever, and I don't know nothing about him, but I can tell you right away, just by just by reading his his tricks and, and the tricks he put out is like the black bag is Malini. I think he was the most underrated performer. Maybe not underrated today because sure. he's a legend, but mm-hmm. what I mean is there's not much out there about him. His yep. card stab, his block of ice from under you know, under the hat and stuff like this. And Johnny Thompson's got some great stories, but they, they are from uh, 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 Charlie Miller's uh, come from Charlie Miller the information because I think Charlie Miller got up obtained uh, all the uh, notes etc from I, I don't know I, I'm guessing through Eddie Maguire who was the guy that wrote Phantoms at the card table and Eddie Maguire was Melina's manager for a few years mm-hmm. and uh, I think Eddie Maguire and Charlie Miller were quite close and I think that's where he obtained all the Melini stuff I guess I don't know that seems um, like a reasonable yeah yeah and then that's how the egg bag come about because Charlie Miller gave it to Ken Brook mm-hmm. and Ken Brook decided to publish his version of of what he had read from the uh, Charlie Miller notes that come from Malini mm-hmm. and, and, and Ken Brook tried his best to describe it in in words in a pamphlet form but it's very difficult to describe the, the manoeuvre of the egg bag it needs to be basically constructed on a DVD you know but knowing knowing it again knowledge and understanding you know sure yeah yeah that's the difference you know and uh, yeah I just wish people like Albert Goshman and Melini and Roy Benson if you could just break down their acts today and find out why they sleeved it, why they used a magnet to ditch it, and why they used a pull for that piece, and all these things, you know. Um, it's just fascinating to me, you know. And uh, it's, it's lost, and it's disappearing. So, you know, um, yeah, and it's, the magic world is changing in many ways, but, but uh, you know, I just wish I had resources to go back and study though under those people you know sure you know i asked a room full of magic i just did a lecture tour and i put my hand up this is interesting and in the 30 odd lectures i did i did about 28 lectures across the country there was three teenagers total in all those clubs put together one was about 11 one was about 14 the other one was about 16 teenagers three of them that's that's amazing to me because Who's carrying on the clubs? Yeah. Who's going to carry on the new magic world? Well, that's, I mean, I I think that that's a serious issue, but the the kids aren't going to the clubs because they're not made to feel well. No, they're not. They're going going on the internet. 
the, but the, but that's not the only reason the kids would go to the clubs if they were teaching them magic and they were getting together and having sessions of magic they yeah. would go to the clubs but these old fuddy duddies are stood there talking about politics and bills and and uh you know like club issues political bullshit and who wants to listen to that kids want to do magic so they're not going to the clubs so the clubs have got their self to blame you know the old old men in the dark are blaming the internet get with it you know just like get a (laughs) fucking cell phone dude yeah stop blaming the internet get a cell phone learn how to use it you'll understand what the internet's all about yeah you can't blame you know there's people blaming the diminish of uh brick and mortar shops um but i've had problems with people in massachusetts who had brick and mortar shops they didn't like the pros coming to hang out because they never bought anything but that's what brick and mortar shops were all about the pros would frequent these shops to just to get the gossip and share the gossip yeah. you know they would hang at these places but i talk about a guy like hank lee he would despise me going in because he said i never spent any money but he's gone his brick and mortar shops are gone mm-hmm. but brick and mortar shops were hangouts for magicians but the owners of those brick and mortar shops said we don't want you coming here we don't want you playing chess or reading the books we want you to buy something if you don't want to buy something get out basically that's what they said in so many words yeah and i've always been told that many times but but uh, now they're all gone, and so people are hanging out on the internet, you know? Yeah. So they got themselves to blame, you know? But again, it's the same thing of the clubs talking about politics, where they should be doing magic to these kids. And the first thing I do when I get to a lecture hall, if there's 30 people in the room, I say, who's the president? The guy will put his hand up, and I said, come up here, please. Shuffle the deck. And I go and sit in his seat. And he says, what do you want? I say, shuffle the deck. I'm going to do a trick. I want you to shuffle. And believe me, they're all dropping them. They can't even do an overhand shuffle. Yeah. And these guys, are the presidents, are deciding what kids can come in. And they judge those kids to come yeah. in the club. And it's so wrong. And this guy can't even fucking shuffle a deck of cards. And he's judging that 15-year-old kid who wants to become a member of the club. You have to be able to do this trick, this trick, this trick. You have to be able to make a coin vanish. You know, this priorities guy, aren't, aren't in the right it's spot. It's completely back to front, yeah. yeah. So I ripped the guy apart. I said, I can't believe you can't even shuffle a deck of cards. Unbelievable. And he's totally embarrassed and he's gone beetroot red because he knows, you know. Can't even shuffle cards. And he's yeah. the president of the club. Knob. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. That's what's wrong. Yeah. You know, it's wrong about that. And, uh, and so those kids are not coming. You know, they're going to the internet and, and the internet's a big... It's a big. I'm a big fan of it. Sure, I really am. It's not changing my my life at living. Yeah, it's not changing my aspect of how I see magic. It's helping magic, I believe. TV exposure on you know all the shows that are coming out, all the people winning. America's got talent, and England's got talent. It's it's magic's on an all time high, and it, and if it remains like that, it would be great for everyone. You know, everyone complained about the mass magician. You know, all these old fuddy duddies, the president of the club saying he expose this and he exposed that's what the fuck if they told him there's a little gap in one of the rings and that's how they link them who gives a shit you think people stop doing the linking rings because there's a gap in there it's like you go in on the turn on the tv the turner network and there's a guy in his garage teaching you how to change the carburetor on a on a on a mini Mm -hmm. and a mini cooper s in england they teach you how to change the twin carburetors Mm-hmm. And you you get this wrench and you do this and you twist that you open that valve you do all these things, yeah. but you can't remember what he's done. 
Can you? You, no, you can't change you, your yeah, carburetor you or the mini yourself. in your garage. Yeah, exactly. You can't do it. So the same with the gap in the linking ring and there's two linked together. It's someone who wants to learn to do it, who puts in the time. And then you're a magician and you have the right to know. Yeah. No, it's not hindering me. So the mass magician was hated, you know, rightly so, but he, you know, he's hated with a couple of hundred grand in his pocket. Um, but he, he was hated, but he didn't, he didn't interfere with my pocketbook. He didn't interfere with how I do my shows. Hasn't interfered with me, not mm-hmm. whatsoever. They hated Penn and Teller when they come out and perform the cups and balls with clear cups, not understanding why they did it. Didn't understand it. They just decided to hate them throughout the, the whole world when yeah. they first produced that routine on TV or, or in the theatre or wherever they performed it. They say, Penn and Teller's doing it as a couple of guys, you know, a couple of buffoons doing it in New York with some clear plastic cups. That's what they won't do. You know, that's yeah. not going to happen. We'll boo them. We'll get them out of the fraternity. We'll blacklist them everywhere. They're the greatest things that ever happened to Magic, Penn and Teller, you know? Yeah. It took, how long did it take Amazing Jonathan to perform at the castle? It took him like three decades for them to finally say, Jonathan, come and do your show here. The guy's a fucking genius. I mean, he's like, and they ban him from the castle because they say he's derogatory against women and he treats women like shit. The woman was a paid actress. Mm-hmm. You don't ban Tom Cruise for uh, fighting his villain in yeah. the start in the one of the secret agent movies, and he mm-hmm. beat the shit because he's trying to kill Tom Cruise. Yeah. You don't ban Tom Cruise because he beat the shit out of this other actor. Yeah. They're actors. Sandra was an actress in Tom in uh, Jonathan's show, and he's dragging her hair, stapling her eyes to the cart, card to the eyes, and mm-hmm. taping her hair and. It's just a show. And yeah. there's funny duddies in the, in the castle saying, oh, we never have him here, you know, no way. But it was, it was a show, and the guy's brilliant. He's a fantastic guy. guy. Oh, yeah, great, absolutely. Com- great comedian. And, uh, and they finally had him in the castle, and it's all forgiven. It's like 30 years to do that. Give me a break. Give me a break. That's the guys that can't shuffle the cards. Yep. They're at the top. No idea. Anyway. We live most of them. Most of them. We live most. We live longer than most of them. Yeah, we? yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Because we're not. <laughs> we don't have heat flowing through our veins. Yeah, it's a shame. But magic's on all-time high, and I'm really proud to be part of it. You know. Yeah, you. Uh, you know, I attribute a lot of the the resurgence of magic and television in the last couple of years to Penn and Teller and their show when it started in Britain. Foolish, yeah, then, great, yeah. great concept, great yeah. shows. Give a lot of people a great exposure that wouldn't get exposure anywhere else, you know. Mm-hmm. And the idea is not really to fool Penn and Teller, but people don't understand. The idea is to get exposure yeah. on TV that we wouldn't get, you know. When I when I did uh, Penn and Teller, they they were all telling me that I was out of place and how would I fall in with the cups and balls. But I got asked to do that routine on that show. Mm-hmm. I didn't go on there willingly. They asked me. It was Johnny Thompson that asked me to come on the show and perform the cups and balls. That is why I was on there. Yeah. You know, and I took advantage of it because I get exposure. Sure. You know, all these old fuckers. You know, you know, sat there can't get a hard on. You know. <laughs> Give me a write-up saying you no place in Penn and Teller because you can't fool them, you know. Most people couldn't fool Penn and Teller, first of all. No, you, you know, well, there are a few that There are, yeah, sure. But that's not, but it's not about that. That's though. not it's the point a, at it's all. It's not really about that. It's just an entertaining show yeah. all around. 
mm. and it's a great show and Penn uh, argumentatively can be very opinionated and that's his style but he's come across as being one of the nicest guys that's ever been on TV he's got great things to say about each and everyone that's been on that show mm-hmm. you know and uh, they come across as really cool people and yeah. uh, everyone loves that show and it's because of Penn and Teller and also Jonathan Ross that's carrying the show sure and it's a, it's a great concept and there's room for it in magic you know it's mm-hmm. great it's really a good show oh absolutely and uh, I'd be willing to go on it again and I would fall in bad I've fallen with my new routine right Elliot absolutely in a heartbeat. Yeah, in a heartbeat. I'm <laughs> bad. Yeah, it's a great show. I'm really happy with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about... Uh, I'm just curious if you want to talk about um, your your egg bag. And not even, not even the trick, not even the routine, just how you think about the egg bag and how it should be, the black bag. Did we well, talk about that earlier? We talked a little bit about it. I don't remember if we were recording, though. Where are we? I don't know. I can't remember. I don't know. But this is, to explain to the readers, the listeners, this is the second session. We're at uh, yeah. Dave... Uh, we're at Dave Buck's condo. Yeah. And we were recording at the castle about, I don't know, th- three hours ago, four hours ago. But I had to get kicked out to start a, sh- a lunchtime show, and we didn't finish the segment, so we're down here at Dave Buck's. Condo. You know, the twins. Yeah. They're not talking to each other because he forgot his birthday. <laughs> the brother forgot his brother's birthday. <laughs> Terrible, just terrible. You can't imagine the the tension in the house. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I don't remember if we talked about it already, but I, I want to talk about it again. Just so it goes back to what has kind of been a through line through the whole discussion is the idea that you perform for real people, and so you don't come out and say, "I'm going to show you the egg bag." Cause no, you don't come out and say, "Ladies and gentlemen, here's the egg bag," because that's what magicians have adopted that yeah. title and call it the egg bag but mm-hmm. I'm on a campaign to call it the black bag because you can't come out and say to somebody who wants to see the color changing deck routine <laughs> like as duh yeah so I don't call it the egg bag I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to call it the black bag and I wish everybody would call it the black bag so I, I'm selling uh, a DVD called the black bag and it's how I perform the egg bag mm-hmm. routine um, but I perform it primarily for lay people Although there are magicians this week at the castle and I'm following them really bad with it because I've designed it purposely with, again, a rhythm thing. Mm -hmm. And that is what magicians cannot work out, the rhythm thing. A classic example of the rhythm thing is uh, Hans Fitch. Is it the guy that does all that? Oh, um, yeah, Hans, Hans, yeah, you were right, Hans Hans Fitch, yeah. Yeah. Mass, massively big fan of his. I yeah. didn't like it when I first see it. It was too busy, mm-hmm. but I'm, I've become a big fan. That's called a rhythm performance. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a package thing that he's doing. All the thing rhythm and bouncing and yeah. and uh, you know that's what I'm t- he's not really doing tricks. He's not lapping. He's doing all those things, but it's the rhythm that you can't follow. Sure. You see, mm-hmm. same with my my black bag routine. It's a rhythm thing, and that's why I'm falling magicians because it's not in textbooks yeah. see what I mean it's not something you can read about I was fooled badly yeah, yeah. <laughs> several times everyone during that is. routine yeah. yeah yeah everyone is yeah and that's just the part of it I got much more to it mm-hmm. you know I got much more added to it you know um, yeah I'm quite proud of it it's a nice routine uh, 
but you know like I said earlier the, the people that didn't understand that egg bag yeah. the black bag was Marlowe Vernon Larry Jennings they didn't understand it and uh, they go I don't get it I don't understand it they even wrote that in some of the magazines you know even Marlowe told me and I you know I said you ever perform with uh, other apparatus other than cars he said no I said never they like the black egg bag and he said no and that's a horrible trick and I'm like what how could you say that it's the greatest trick in the world and uh but the people that said it was a great trick was Roy Benson, Bob Reed, Bob Sheets, Tom Sini, um, uh, Ken Brook, Charlie Miller. These people, Malini, of course, of course, fits in that category. So these seven people that I mentioned are all entertainers with the deck of cards, mm-hmm. with uh, with those props. Sure. Okay. But when you got the uh, the people that didn't understand it was Marlowe, Vernon, Larry Jennings. They didn't understand it. They said it's the worst apparatus that you could ever purchase. But they weren't performers with those. If you try and perform those tricks that they described in the books and told you what tricks they would perform at a convention, understandably, yes, that's great for a convention. But you do those tricks for lay people, the lay people will just tap you on the shoulder and say, good job, next. Right? Yeah. But the people that would just go out with their eyes watering and uh, and thoroughly enjoy themselves and their bellies are hurting yeah. would be people like Bob Reed and uh, Al Goshman, mm-hmm. Roy Benson. You see what I mean? These people were entertainers with those props. They understood what the egg bag was all about. They understood about six p. They understood mm-hmm. about Chinese sticks. They they wouldn't you wouldn't see them doing ace assemblies mm-hmm. because it just doesn't work. Yeah, is it? Oh. Is it the audience interaction? Is it the the just the comedic timing and rhythm? No, it's a rhythm thing. It's all about a rhythm thing. Watch Roy Benson work. Watch um, uh, who who could I say? Bob Reed. Watch uh, watch these guys work. You know, you can't get footage of Mulaney, unfortunately, but watch all these guys. The way they form the rhythm of with what they're doing whether it's six card repeat Chinese sticks Miser's Dream you watch these guys and then you'll thoroughly understand mm-hmm. and you watch the the performer that I mentioned also is Marlowe and Vernon and Larry Jennings you watch those guys perform it's just nothing flat great tricks for a convention yeah but you put a lay people in front of them. But, you know, you say, well, Vernon performed the cups and balls. But, yeah, but it was Molina's routine that he took. He just adopted it, adapted it mm. to suit his style of working. But the rhythm of the cups and balls was Molina's. Well, Molina, and that rhythm has been going for centuries. That, that style of working, you know, it hasn't changed. But the way they performed it, Vernon took it and published it. But look at um, Vernon's Symphony of the Rings. It's it's not Vernon's. It's Cardini's. When Cardini uh, decided to retire from his stand-up manipulation act mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, reasons I don't want to disclose right now, sure. But um, he, he blamed other magicians stealing his stuff, and maybe they were working cheaper than him because he was high-priced variety entertainer yeah of course and people were doing it for half the price and they were coming out the woodwork or copying Cardini with the monocle and the sneer and the tipsy waddle on stage and mm-hmm. all this etc etc 
he, he blamed them that they were doing it cheaper, but that's not the reason. There's another reason uh, that come out later on. Um, but when Cardini uh, would would come out and perform, uh, I've lost my train of thought. Where was I going? Uh, Vernon Symphony of the Rings was Cardini's. Yes, Symphony of the Rings. Cardini was working on a, a, a routine of the Symphony mm-hmm. of the Rings, what we see today. And it was a, a routine that everyone does but it was definitely Cardini's because Cardini, if you think of that routine, it's from a performer's point of view. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. All this flourishes and the, and the globe and yeah. the, the rose opening up. It's all, it's all performers. Vernon was never a performer, so how would he come up with all that stuff? Sure. Stole it. <laughs> and I have proof. I, I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Swan Cardini told me that Vernon had come round to uh, stay with... Uh, Richard Pitchford, who was Cardini's real name, mm-hmm. in Blackhawk Trail, where they lived, and uh, they had a trailer that they would put akin to the the house, and they would knock one wall of the house down and bring the trailer up, which give it an extension, and sure. they would sleep in there, it's like an extra bedroom, and they would have latches and lock it, lock the trailer, securing it to the house. And when they would go on tour, they would put doors up on that segment of the hole in the house and then unhitch the trailer and take it on the road to their conventions and gigs, etc. Mm-hmm. Vernon come and stayed in there. And then in the middle of the night, Carol Cardini, um, she lives in Bakersfield. Um, she, she will even tell you the story herself. She woke up her dad and mum and said, Mummy and Daddy, I can't sleep because the light's on. And Richard turned around and said, well, I turned the light off. She said, no, there's a man in there, in the study. Richard gets up, looks in there, and Vernon's taking all his notes. And that's when they told him to get out of the house. And then months later, Symphony of the Rings was published. Wow. Which, and Cardini turned his back on the fraternity and said, I've had enough. No one's coming here. And that's why Swan was very adamant of meeting anybody but uh, she took to me and, and uh, I actually stayed in that little tra- trailer and I, st- and I went down in the basement. I saw all the, the German lathes, the watchmaking lathes. Wow. Um, and all of the Cardini para- paraphernalia of all the, all the billboards and stuff, which I believe Bill Kalush has got a lot of it now for his collection, which is great. It's in good hands. Yeah. But uh, I went through all that many years before anybody did purposely to search for uh, information about Walter Scott because Walter Scott and Richard Pitchford were good friends. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So, Cardini, Richard Pitchford. And that's how it came about. And that's how I got the story of one swan telling me these stories about Walter Scott, Eddie McGuire, and uh, Cardini, and uh, her, you know. And I've got all that on audio tape, which is part of the Walter Scott Talkings sure, sure. sessions. I've interviewed Tony Cardero, who was a Cardini wannabe. He told me about he felt bad throughout his career ripping off Cardini, you know, in the in the monocle and the evening suit and yeah. doing the pipe gag and the big cigar. He felt bad about doing all that, but he felt that was the norm back then to steal. So people have been stealing stuff their entire life. Yeah, but yeah. he said he could never sleep good. You know, he yeah. told me he said I, I I've never been able to sleep good knowing that I made a career out of somebody else's act. I'd I taken someone else's persona, the timing of his jokes, the timing of his pantomimes, his dress, his style, and even how he carried himself of an evening. Mm-hmm. You know, 
he said, I've, I've never slept properly because of it, living with that. So if people can sleep properly still in my gear, good luck to you. <laughs> you, know? you know, I sleep good at night. I've yeah, never yeah. stolen anything in my life. So, yeah, there's a lot to be said. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to the, the Walter Scott I think sessions. Yeah, I think yeah. everyone is. Yeah, I, I can't wait to get it out. There needs to be put out. Yeah. You don't have a time frame for it or anything? Next no, five, ten years? No, this when David Britland wants to put it out because I actually give everything to David Britland mm -hmm. as a reward for having me write the book. <laughs> because I couldn't write the book myself. He did a painstaking job. He did a great job. Yeah. And, uh, so I rewarded him with all the Walter Scott photographs, signed photographs, signed books. I got the original book that I got in 1969, uh, the little Sparrow Bound uh, book. Yeah. Was that the, the Gambler's uh, Gambler's Book? Gambler's yeah, Club. 1969. Yeah, Gambler's yeah. Book, Sparrow Bound, Phantom yeah. of the Card Table, the yeah, yeah. original one. I don't know if it's the original, original, but it is one of the first ones is I it, had. Is it like one of the small ones? Like It's about so big. I have one of those. <laughs> yeah, Sparrow Bound. Yeah, yeah. 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 1969. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's just collectors. Well, it's not a collectors. The original manuscript is a collectors. Sure, yeah. You know? But I just sat with a guy called Arnaud. He's a French guy, and mm -hmm. he's fantastic. He's a friend of Steve's. He's a friend of mine now, and I mm -hmm. sat with him for about four hours the other day in Vegas. We went out for lunch. He does some fantastic stuff with a deck of playing cards. Unbelievable. And uh, we went through some stories and swapped ideas about the gambling table. But uh, yeah, he showed me some uh, photographs of his collection, what he has, notes about Walt Scott that was written by Eddie McGuire. Mm -hmm. Wow. The, the, actually, the pamphlet had come about because when people paid $100 for the demonstration back in 1938, Sorry, 1928, okay. 1929, 1930, 31, 32, but in that era, sure. I forget exactly when it was, he did a demonstration of card handling and he charged people $100 to come and witness it, which was a lot of money back then. Eddie did? Eddie, Eddie charged? Did. Okay. He charged people $100 and there was five or six guys that had come in to witness it. And it, I think it was Max Holden's house or mm -hmm. Professor Quimby's house, one of the two. I can't, I'm not really sure. Accurately, yeah. I'm not sure. Um, but afterwards they willingly paid the hundred but a lot of them were reluctant they said we want something for it so that is when Eddie Maguire typed up a manuscript of Walter's work Walter said he never given permission mm -hmm. to do this but because Eddie Maguire wanted to do more demonstrations he felt he would type up the manuscript so you can see the demonstration for a hundred but here's a manuscript to go with it so that manuscript circulated to sort of top card men and it was copied and etc. And that's what we have today at Gambler's Book Club. Sure. Walter Scott said he didn't want it out there because they accused him of being a card cheat. And that's that's putting somebody on a pedestal that you don't want to be. Yeah. You know, he was associated in New England and Rhode Island and New York amongst prominent businessmen because he would perform in their houses sure. playing music. They didn't want him calling him a card cheat, and that is what he was labeled. He was tarnishing his, his tarnishing reputation. his reputation. Yeah, and and uh, he was he fell out with Eddie McGuire over it, and uh, so in turn, in the last eighty years, that manuscript has been circulated all over, and that is when uh, Howie of uh, Gambler's Book Club got hold of one, mm -hmm. Howie Schwartz, 
Schwartzman got hold of the original manuscript and decided it was in public domain to publish it in, ma in a book form. And that's what we have today. And that's what the book I got when I was nine years old that my grandfather would give me. Wow. And that's what I was reading, the same one you're reading today. But I was nine years old. Yeah. I couldn't read it. It was something you don't give a nine-year-old boy. No, of course, But yeah. it was just a magic book as far as my grandfather was concerned. Yeah. He didn't read by the reading it. It's not his thing, you know. But my sister read it for me, and I read in the back pages about what uh, they were saying about Walt Scott. You know, uncanny, supernatural, you know. <laughs> a phantom, yeah. A phantom, apparition, yeah, great exciting they said he didn't exist they said he was made up because Eddie Maguire wanted to boast about he found this will-o'-the-wisp of a card expert and he was the greatest in the world and and they said Vernon was the best but everyone's saying this guy's the best and it was purposely designed so they could say bring him here and Vernon would keep going up to Eddie Maguire saying where's this phantom and then he would say well let's talk about this other thing first and that's how they got to know each other mm -hmm. they said it was designed purposely to get to know Vernon but the guy did exist and he was real and I found him yeah yeah I think uh, I think it's reasonable that Eddie used Walter to get close to they said Walter said he used him yeah he, he fell yeah. out with him yeah 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 that's awesome <laughs> I'm very excited I, I actually read um your book before I got the the Gambler's Book Club copy. Right. Where'd you get the Gambler's Book Club copy? I got it at MagicCon. Andy Greggett brought Andy all Greggett. his books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got some great stuff, yeah. Great stuff. And I was just flipping through. It had been like maybe a year since I'd read your book. I was just yeah. flipping through. And it caught my eye and I pulled it out. And blue spiral bound, blue spiral yeah. bound, a little yeah. bitty white. It was yeah. old yellowed, and it's not complete though. The 1972 version has got more added to it. Oh, okay, yeah. I I made the 72 version. It might be 72, but it's still old blue spiral yeah. bound. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I pulled it out and it was like 15 bucks, and I was like, yeah, this well, well worth it. This is mine now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Goodbye. awesome. I yeah, absolutely. I loved I loved your book. I recommend it constantly to people that are like, oh, how are you? You can't get it no more. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> I just buying them back. Every time I see one, I buy it. Yeah. You know, I'm buying them back. I've got four or five complete copies of my own, um, which I will sell later on. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, they're they're collectors. I'm talking about the the hardback one. Yeah, yeah. Although we sold the rights to an American publishing company and we've never been paid for that, they bought the rights to publish the softback version called Card Sharks. I, f I think something like that. Or it's a different title from Phantoms because they couldn't use Phantoms because they didn't pay us for the. Rights. I have a softbound Phantoms. Yeah, it's, what's it called? It's called. Uh, it's called. No, it's called Phantoms of the Card Table. Really? Yeah. Is it the green one? The green softback one? That come from England? Uh, I don't think so. There's an American one called. Uh, uh, card sharks, I think it's the same book. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, I don't know. I have to. It's it's at home in Louisiana. I have to take yeah. a look at it. I'll shoot have you a email it. about it. I think you'll yeah. find it. It's called Card Sharks or okay. something different from Phantoms at the Card Table on the f front cover. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it says. I, but I may have the, the Confessions of one. a Card Cheat. It's called. I think Confessions of a Card Hustler, something like that. Yeah. I don't think I'm, maybe I'm wrong anyway, I, well, I, might, I might be wrong it doesn't matter I haven't paid for it screw them <laughs> I, th I, I have a legit copy, copy I think hopefully 
But anyway, yeah, I still recommend it to people, even if they buy it secondhand or find it, you know, from yeah, Andy or something. It's a good read. It is a good read. You did a good job on it, and I think it's a treasure. Mm. I look forward to the the ensuing yeah. DVDs. Yeah. Um, let me see. Let me take a look at the notes. Oh, I I want to start asking in these podcasts just just some interesting little rapid fire questions near the end because we've been doing this about another hour and I think yeah. that's a good good length. Um, when when was the last time that you were really fooled hard? When you just like you had that like guttural like whoa what just happened reaction? Yeah, Ooh, it's not very, it doesn't happen very often. No, I, I wouldn't imagine so. Mm-hmm. Fooled really hard. Or and it doesn't have to be the last time. Maybe your favorite time that you were. Okay, fooled I, I would honestly say Mickey Sil- Mickey Silver. Okay. He fooled me really bad with his coin vanish. Okay. I mean, like extremely bad. Live sitting right there. Yeah. And then he then he took me back to his home one day and he did a a stack of poker chips switched them red ones to black ones like this they were a big stack and it fooled me like wow brainstorm me it was unbelievable that's awesome yeah that's the the only time I've been really blown away Mickey Silver yeah that's cool yeah well thank you so much for doing this I look forward to piecing together the two parts of it yeah good luck it'll release in probably February yeah I yeah. look forward to listening to it. No, and, I won't listen to it. Well, I, I'll shoot you a copy of it after it's edited and finished so yeah. that you can listen to it if you want yeah. to, if there's anything yeah. you want to take out or sure. change. But I think Pretty you're... good. Thanks. I hope you get something out of it. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome.